0: Aegon the Conqueror wanted all of Westeros south of the Wall. Not most of it. All of it. From his perspective, he had been relatively patient. With few exceptions, the majority of the realm had bent the knee to the Iron Throne during the Conquest. That's why they called it the Conquest. Now, years are enumerated by the abbreviation AC, which stands for after the Conquest. It wasn't until the year four AC that attacks on Dorne began. So there was, as we talked about last time in the dragon's interim, a good bit of time between th- when hostilities broke out. Queen Rainey's had promised to return with fire and blood, and she did. But Miria told her to remember Miria. Rather, Miria told her to remember the words of House Martell. Words echoed throughout Dorne on rare occasions such as this an outside invasion is the best time for unbowed unbent unbroken to be all of dorn's motto not just the words of their princely house they're all martels in terms of this attitude when the dragons come or when anyone comes but especially the dragons but what do those words actually mean when faced with dragons and large armies it's a difficult proposition but Aegon might have been a bit overconfident given his earlier successes and the Dornish might have been confident in that and some other factors. You might be familiar with the general idea of what happens to invaders, even dragon riding invaders in those deep deserts. But this is before the Targaryens knew that they hadn't tried this before. This was new to them. Now, it wasn't new to some of the people in their armies. But it was new to House Targaryen. We get to watch them learn the hard way. Let's put it that way. We'll discuss what he did right, what he did wrong. Same goes for his subcommanders. And what made Dorne so different? How is it that Aegon had such an easy time with all the rest of the realm, yet such a hard time south of the Red Mountains? Plus, a lot of these lessons are going to be, or not, learned by future targaryens and we'll talk a a little bit about that as well all that and more on this episode of history of westeros podcast hello and welcome everybody welcome back to another sunday afternoon if you're here live otherwise whatever day you're listening to this welcome and know that we recorded it on a sunday at 3 p.m eastern on youtube so if you are inclined to watch us live that's the time to do it afterwards every video stays up on youtube and also gets posted on spotify and the audio only version is available everywhere you listen to podcasts and it's ad free if you listen on patreon our topics moot is coming soon get yourself ready get signed up uh, on our patreon and participate in the choosing of what will be this year 12 topics and in future years, we might do more than that. So be a part of the first ever Topics moot. And if you're hearing this later, be a part of the second or third or fourth, whatever that happens to be. <laughs> hey, Sean, how's it going? Good to see you there. You excited to talk about this episode today?
1: Yeah, I'm mostly excited. It's, uh, I, I got to say, this whole storyline is frustrating to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Can't we all just get along, you
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's in the right place for this sort of thing. When it's real, it's, it's frustrating, and that's why you feel it that way. But we get to remind ourselves, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it does r- relate to things in the real world. A lot of r- realistic things, a lot of ideas that we can maybe bring ourselves to try to imagine. Not too much. Like, you don't want to imagine yourself being in a war like this. But we're going to do it a little bit anyway. We're going to try to put ourselves in the in the boots of some of the soldiers on the ground, in the desert, and some of these tough spots. I think that's what makes some of these topics particularly interesting is, is picturing yourself there, imagining yourself in it, or imagining someone else in it. Imagining yourself watching it maybe is a more pleasant way to experience that. But yeah, it's, it's not pleasant overall, though, is it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a common way people, definitely me, but I think I'm not unique in this, that people approach how they consume media, books or TV shows or whatever. A, a lot of the time, what's going through your head is, what would I do? I would have done this they should do this you know you're constantly thinking about like what would it could have should have happened how you would have done it differently and to be fair a lot of times if i or a objective rational person was in that situation there wouldn't be this conflict in the first place and we wouldn't have this media. <laughs> that's true that's true also you would have different attitudes about
0: everything you wouldn't have 2023 20, sensibilities you would have dornish right, yeah in you know four ac sensibilities or westeros he said whatever whatever part you know, of the realm you're from. i'm
2: living with 2024 sensibilities i think oh. you should catch Whoops. up <laughs> i haven't moved on yet i'm living
0: in the past <laughs> That joke never gets old when you forget what year it is, when you forget to turn the calendar. I'm <laughs> yeah. a woman in the past. That's right. Yeah. Ha ha. You've never heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of you've never heard that before, the latest question posed to Nina on her blog, goodqueenally.com or .tumblr.com, excuse me, is written as, sorry if you've been asked this before, but where was Princess Elia and her entourage headed when Ulmer of the Kingswood Brotherhood stole a kiss from her? Good question where were they going? What was the deal? Who else was there? And was it around the time that Rhaegar unhorsed Simon Toyn? So really good question. Really interesting episode that happened not, bef- not long before the rebellion. So you want to read Nina's take on that and see what she says. It's a good one. And if you have questions of your own, you to, that you want to direct towards us, um, you can send them to westeroshistory at gmail.com or you can ask live during a live stream. At the end of this episode, I'll mention some episodes that relate to this one. If you wanna stay immersed, you can go check those out. And I'll also give you the answer to this trivia question. What sigil did House Toland have prior to the first Dornish War? In this episode, it's going to change. So if you listen carefully, you'll get the answer. Last time we discussed the first few years of Aegon's reign, the final subtopic we covered was the peaceful attempts to bring Dorn into the realm. We wondered what those attempts were comprised of what kind of offers or threats or both were made, but regardless, didn't work. So it's not super important; just a curiosity. So that takes us to this nice summary style quote from *Fire and Blood* about the big picture.
2: "Quote: The long reign of King Aegon the First Targaryen, 1 A.C. to 37 A.C. was by and large a peaceful one. In his later years, especially." But before the dragon's peace, as the last two decades of his kingship were later called by the maesters of the Citadel, came the dragon's wars, the last of which was as cruel and bloody a conflict as any ever fought in Westeros.
0: Since this is a reread for most of you listening, you might have nodded in agreement at that last line when you first read or heard it. And perhaps again, just now, because, yes, it is as cruel and bloody a conflict as any ever fought in Westeros, which is what Sean was talking about when, at the beginning about it being frustrating and, and awfully violent. Yes, indeed, it really is. And you thought of a few, a few parallels to kick us off with wars that get really bogged down, wars that get really bloody and, and, and very little progress gets made on either side, either towards peace or towards ending a war one way or the other.
1: There are many, many examples, but a couple I thought might be particularly apropos are because George would have lived through them. They might've been, you know, it, certainly in his brain if not at the forefront of his brain was the US and Vietnam And that was a scenario where it was, you know, overwhelming forces, right? Like the U.S. hugely had, you know, more manpower, technology and whatnot than Vietnam. And, you know, there's there's a bunch of reasons, like political reasons why we weren't fully committed, right? There just as a policy, we weren't trying to take over Vietnam. We were just trying to stop Soviets from taking over. So we were just sitting there waiting for them to attack us. And they were using guerrilla warfare, right? Which Mm -hmm. was difficult to fight against, even when you have like jet planes in the air or whatever. How does that stop people like in tunnels, hiding out in a jungle, things like that, that, that were by the way lasted approximately the US involvement was approximately 10 years from you know when Johnson sent significant ground forces in 1965 to when we're like pulling people out by helicopter in Saigon in 1975. This war was also about ten years, right? Yeah, and uh, the USSR in Afghanistan is also something it would have been in George's life. Very true. But we're leading up to the writing of the books, and also lasted almost exactly ten years. It was nineteen eighty 1980 to nineteen eighty nine, I think, that Soviets put forces in until they pulled them out. Again, huge, overwhelming forces. This time in more of a desertous landscape. with maybe some more similarities to Doran there, but uh, but they were determined to take over and. <laughs> were not uh, successful 10 years of guerrilla warfare and the, the people there they they didn't have like huge cities that could be like choked off or destroyed that then shut the comfort country down and made them surrender they were just scattered population through the countryside and the mountainside just like Dorne. you could attack little segments of them but
0: they were unbowed unbent unbroken yeah they were they didn't give up they didn't just say okay well, we can go back to the we can go back to our normal lives under these conquerors that that's one thing that Sometimes is a consideration, I think. But, yeah, these are great examples, Sean, because, for example, Vietnam, one of the big things there was tunnels. And here in Dorne, there's lots of caves. So not the same thing. They're digging tunnels, but caves are effectively the same thing because they are a refuge from air power. You can't get it's harder to get bombed when you're up in a tunnel. You can't get seen or scouted. Of course, the jungles help with that, too, but which there aren't in Dorne. But. That's where afghanistan has more similarity because it's deserty and mountainy and and dry and and water and supplies are really hard to to get a hold
1: of and you know one thing that we tried to do to deal with the the jungle aspect was napalm we would like rain fire down amounts of fire yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like the dragons and that would have been another
0: like what rainies did in in uh the stormlands yeah near um when the Armies were ambushing them. They just started just torching the entire forest. Like, okay, you're going to hide <laughs> in the forest. We're going to destroy the forest. Yeah, that you're right. That's an extremely strong parallel. So let's, let's talk about when this started. We can be pretty sure winter came to Westeros in the fifth year after the conquest because it was the second year of autumn already in AC4. So they had two straight years of autumn which is a dead giveaway that winter is soon. Winter is coming. Winter is soon. What am I saying? Winter is coming, right? (laughs) I just totally used the wrong slogan. Wow. So that means the campaign started in autumn, which is an interesting choice. Now, this was on purpose. They weren't just like bumbling around saying, okay, well, we'll just go attack without any consideration to what the weather was going to be like. They thought it was going to help them because, well, it's hot and dry in Dorne. And if it's autumn, that should mitigate some Of that heat, it should be cooler and the water would be more plentiful and they weren't entirely wrong, but it wasn't as much of a difference as they probably would have hoped for. I mean, it's like that thing. Remember Sean, remember the Futurama joke uh, when they come, the aliens come because they're mad that single female lawyer was canceled. It's like we will raise the temperature of your planet 1 million degrees a day for five days. (laughs) It's like, we're all dead after that first day. It's the same thing here. Like, a little more water isn't going to save
1: you from dying when you have no water. You know, like, two drops of water isn't much better. (laughs) Or, you know, 94 degrees instead of 112 degrees. Like, 112 is extreme and tough to to deal with. But if it's 94 instead, like, that's better, I guess. (laughs) But you're still going to... The horses aren't going to make it. The armor is going to bake you. It's too yeah. many problems.
0: Or one twelve without water, or ninety four without
1: water. I mean,
0: you're <laughs> you're still I mean, without honestly, water either way. A- you're without you're water,
1: right? Like yeah, without, a- without water. water would still be a problem. It, and you know, even if you did have water, because you got to keep in mind too. It's not like they just have to exist there. They have to travel hundreds of miles however and long then fight, yeah right like, <laughs> yeah, and they like, have to what? keep their horses fed and watered in. you know it's not they can't just like barely survive this is supposed to be a, a long march to war and so they don't even make it through the long march yet. yeah i don't yeah. think i don't even know if uh, it's, if they had double the water and 10 degrees cooler i still don't know if they were going to make it because. They're being ambushed on the way. It's not just a march. It's a march through enemy territory. It's too much.
0: It's sort of like the the, the example that's cited a lot in, in the real world, don't try to invade Russia in the winter. Yeah. Maybe yeah. just don't try to invade Russia at all, you know <laughs> <laughs> but But if you do it in the winter, it's terrible. and you might and you might get wrong what winter means. Like they're like, "Oh, winter is in these certain months, and then the rest of the time it's fine. It's like, no, it's hot all the time in Dorne. it's just worse in some of the other months. Yeah. So they 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 mistook some of the ideas here. I think they 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 overestimated what difference the weather would make. And they may have overestimated some other stuff too. They may have expected that the peasantry, the commoners and maybe even some of the lords and knights would capitulate quicker because of supplies and their own fear of being short during the winter. Like, well, if we go to war now, that's going to burn up more resources than it would if we were just chilling at home, right? We don't have to go on these long marches and burn so many thousands of calories a day just to keep going and and you go through our supplies a lot faster that if you're sitting at home at winter, you know, you're not going through your stuff as quick. So they, they might have expected that the Dornish would fear that and that would make them give up quicker, which is part of that, how they started with their strategy. And well, it it didn't work, but in theory, it's not the worst idea, but yeah, (laughs) it's, it didn't work out. Now, winter isn't going to be all that bad in Dorne anyway, but they still need things like bringing their own supplies down. You can't carry all your supplies, right? With you at all times. They have to army... Especially armies of tens of thousands have to constantly re-up their supplies. They can't just have enough for them at all times. That's ridiculous, right? So a lot of times that's done with shipping, with boats. You have boats that are near your armies, and those boats, those navies can supply your main columns. That is something that Alexander the Great did, something that Genghis Khan did. There's just all the conquerors did things like this. Not all, but it's a common strategy amongst conquerors. So there's two quirks here. One is, well, it's harder to sail in winter or in in autumn and then winter. That's a well-known thing in Westeros, especially that side of the continent. Autumn storms are nasty. They're vicious. So... Ex- relying on f- supplies to be shipped in is pretty sketchy now sean we were talking about this ahead of time you also pointed out that there's certain areas of doran that you just can't ship supplies to when <laughs> that is that's very accurate the southern coast of doran not very good now they're not operating all that much down there anyway but it's still it's a good example that that's not an option to them that they might have operated more down there if they had more access
1: even the northern coast you still have to like go down through those mountain passes and then across the desert to reach where hopefully ships are there with supplies like say you don't meet up at the same time even if they did coordinate that just perfectly they barely made it through the mountain passes right yeah, so yeah. <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> like i feel like it was a mistake to not use the boats but that's not really the mistake that did them in yeah you know?
0: it's one the, of many mistakes yeah
1: the mistake i think was to not bring the troops on the boats in the first place that's mm. what they should have done is rather than try to walk down to the mountains and in across the desert Potentially to to link up resupply from boats, they should have just been dropped off by the boats. And if it, now, the problem with that is they probably don't have that many boats, right? That's a lot of boats to carry tens of thousands of soldiers. And we know that a significant portion of Navy was just destroyed in the past couple of years. So.
0: All, you're, you're totally right. There's another logistical issue here as well, which is that the most the bulk of the troops are coming from the Reach. And not just the Reach, but the southern part of, portion of the Reach, which is around Highgarden. Which would mean if they wanted to take ship, they'd have to march a substantial way to get to whatever ships they were going to use. Like if it's the Arbor bringing the ships up to ship them down there. And then they'd have to go all the way around Dorne because the one good place to land in Dorne is northern Dorne, the southern coast of the S- Sea of Dorne, which, you know, you can go across that sea and get into the stormlands. That's the, the only reasonable place for boats to operate, which is still a play area racked by storms. So they'd have to sail all the way from Highgarden, all the way around the southern coast of Dorne, which is a bad place for sailing, and then all the way up to the north and then have all those supplies. Yeah, so...
1: Or potentially they could have marched... From the Reach over to uh, King's Landing. Yeah. And in come down from the southern coast of the Sea of Dorne.
0: But which you just mentioned they don't have ships anymore because the Valyrian Navy was destroyed. So they'd have to, yeah. So there's all sorts of all,
1: issues. All there. those problems as bad as they are, I think are less bad than what ended up happening, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they could have spent the interim, the dragon's interim, building new ships, for example. If they knew, they should have known they'd need them. But that's the thing. I think Aegon was overconfident. He Ships, navies are almost always a massive, massive part of any sort of combat, any sort of campaign. Even if we're talking ancient warfare, even if we're talking pre-medieval. See, uh, supplying or just that being a part of a campaign is super important. And I think Aegon got overconfident. It wasn't a big part of his campaign because he had dragons. He had something that the real world (laughs) uh, doesn't exist and they never had to deal with or include in their plans. So I think he just there's a blind spot in his preparations and his outlook, partly because of two things. One, he didn't didn't need them and uh now he does and didn't realize it till maybe it was too late if he ever realized it you <laughs> know he, he may never have figured out what his mistake was or what of or that particular mistake since as you say sean there were several mistakes and uh, who knows Aegon being kind of a impenetrable personality we don't know a lot about him we don't know we're never going to know exactly what he felt but we except for frustration he certainly was upset that he failed that's for sure but if he aimed his frustration at cer- certain things, who knows? That's not clear.
1: There's a few other factors we'll touch on here, too, but he easily could have been misled. His, his overconfidence might have come from those southern troops who were just raring to get those Dornish. Yeah, you know? and, and those guys might have also, even if they had a proper respect for Dorn and even the desert and the past and everything else, this is the first time they would have been moving down in full force with an alliance from other people. They're not like, bringing this big force to attack Dorne and worried someone's going to attack him from behind while they're out does that make sense that it's the first time that the people that would have attacked them from behind are with them to go down to Dorne you know and they also have the dragons firepower to, and there's all these reasons hindsight's 2020 20, right I, I could see at the get-go why they might have felt confident about this but
0: also here's a great point that that Nina made that Dorne was never truly united until an outside power came in the first place. It was Nymeria in the first place who united Dorne. They were always sort of disparate and not and relatively independent amongst themselves in a way that wasn't so true, or perhaps is less true in the rest of Westeros, in the restros, and. Maybe that's what they were looking at. They were like, well, it took an outsider to come in and and bring them together. It's going to take an outsider to do that again. So they may have looked to that notion as a positive. It probably wasn't true because they are united now. That that unity still exists. They're still united after Nymeria, even though they do often fight with each other. They underestimate from the outside how much that squabbling amongst themselves can fall off completely when they're faced with an outsider someone they hate even more yeah they hate each other but they hate outsiders even more (laughs) i think that's something that maybe they didn't catch doran also wasn't some extremely powerful nation they weren't they're not an economic powerhouse they don't have a lot of cities it's really just the planky town which is maybe not quite a city there's a decent population there but it's it's different it's not a big political power. They don't wield a lot of power outside their own region. They certainly wield some. They, we saw them get involved in wars and maybe tilt the scales one way or another when Westeros was dealing with the Stepstones or fighting some of the, the, fighting against the Kingdom of the Three Daughters or any of that stuff. Dorne. Was like a wild card that could impact those scenarios, but it, they were never the the deciding factor. Doran was like, "Oh no, Doran joined this side. That side's clearly going to win." It, they were never that big. What makes them special is their internal workings, not how they affect the rest of the world. I suppose you could say. So by promising trade deals or other things like that, it wasn't. It's not as interesting to them. It doesn't get them as much. If you tell the the people of Lys or of Volantis, that you have an exclusive trade deal with Westeros. That's huge. But to Dorne, they, they don't do as much trade in the first place. It doesn't matter as much.
1: They're not as interconnected with, with, with each other, with the rest of the that's realm, point, with the rest yeah. of the world, which pros and cons, it means it uh, it's harder for them to be as valuable as an ally, but it's also harder to conquer them, right? Yeah.
0: I wonder, too, I don't think it's mentioned how much raiding was happening. We always know that throughout the the centuries, throughout the eons, raids occurred back and forth between Stormlands, Reach, and Dorne. Vice versa, back and forth, etc. Was that still happening in the early days of after the conquest? If so, it might put a little more emphasis on Aegon getting this done. He's like, look, there's this constant state of micro warfare happening here this is not the king's peace you need to do something about this and you know the obvious solution from a conqueror's perspective is just take the whole thing and then (laughs) you don't have to worry about that anymore you can you can make it an internal issue and etc it's no longer a, a foreign enemy attacking your kingdom it's a it's a it's unrest within your kingdom which makes you look better i guess when you're king it's weaker when you have outsiders attacking you and you're not doing anything about it even if they're just raiders and they're not any political threat still someone like Aegon, who's trying to show how strong he is and act through pure domination and always he- taking the challenge head on winning to show how strong he is this is this would bother him perhaps maybe maybe um eke away at a little bit of his mystique and i think he thought that was important so, but peace is valuable. Now, peace is a valuable thing on either side, right? That's something Dorn would say, well, yeah, okay, well, we can, maybe that's a thing. We don't care as much about the trade or the prestige or whatever, but peace, that's, that's worth something. I'm not sure that Miria was someone who cared about it as much as maybe some of her descendants will.
1: <laughs> I, I even think that she would care about it, but she doesn't care about it as much as she cares about her independence or her legacy or all these other factors. And, you know, that's like through, through history, especially in modern times, that's a common conflict between security, peace, you know, and independence, freedom. Those are often in conflict.
0: And Nina points out too, Aegon may not have wanted to look like just a greedy conqueror. Like I take everything, you know, he might, might have take, taken some time and done the negotiating route, perhaps not even thinking it would work but just for optics it's like, well, we can't just go attack everyone. You know, we should at least try to handle things diplomatically first and showing that he has that gear, you know, even if in his mind, he's like, oh, we're probably just gonna that way he can maybe make them look like the bad guy. He he, he can sort of say, hey, look, we tried to find a peaceable solution. It just didn't work. It's like no one's going to make the argument. Why not? Just do nothing. Why not just leave them alone? You know, it's like, well, that's politics, right? He's he's saying he's he's creating his own argument. By, <laughs> he's he's both creating the argument and answering it all at once without while ignoring some of the other issues here. That, that's 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 the people. That's that's like the whole history is written by the winners. Statement there. It's like he gets to decide how this is framed <laughs> because he's the one with the voice.
1: It it, it is true though. Given it, he's going to attack them. Given it, it is his mission to unite Westeros. It didn't pan out this way, but he probably hoped that by offering peace first, he would look, maybe not look like the good guy, but more the good guy. And that maybe he wouldn't even need as much war if like the people of Dorne in general were like, yeah, we want peace. We don't want this fight. That's Myria. That's, that's Sunspear. We, we're all happy to be part of Westeros. Sure, we're not gonna fight back. You know, if, if they understand he's offering peace, but it's the leaders that are fighting, once again, a parallel to Vietnam, you know, like the people in America, like why are we even doing this? You know, like yeah, <laughs>
0: it's like see these Vietnamese just refuse to make peace. It's like yo, you attacked them in the first place. Yeah. You know, like but people will forget. Yeah, people will forget that, or they'll, yeah, they will accept the framing without questioning it.
1: Right, and there even even in it wasn't that simple too. Like there was a bigger picture. Right, that we're worried about Soviets taking over the world, and they got a foothold in Vietnam, so we got to do something about that. You know, Aegon yeah. feels like we have to unite Westeros. There's, however justified these reasons are that was what was underlying so uh but the thing is in it, it did eventually the people of america were fed up and just you know political pressure became too much and the we, we got out of there was and it was like a a mar it was like a loss you know it was like a, a what do you call it? an embarrassment or defeat you know things america's not used to right and uh so but it didn't happen it's like the other way around here like eventually, Aegon does stop, right? Because it's they're so bogged down. The people of Vietnam weren't saying like, "Oh, since he offered peace, we'll go along with that and turn on our leaders." They didn't turn on their leaders. And,
0: yeah, uh, they didn't. You're right. It was just it was more medieval. It was like we're on our team. We stay on our team. We don't care. We don't have considerations like human rights and and basic considerations for for the sanctity of life that that we hope to have here in 2024. That they definitely don't have
1: there (laughs) a little bit of a tangent but i wonder how it would have been different because is that one different thing about vietnam was it it was on tv Mm. everyone was seeing all this violence and destruction and, and the loss of innocent lives i wonder if the people of dorne because they're not as connected with each other they might not have realized how widespread the the tragedy and loss was i wonder if they If it would have changed anything if they did know better
0: that's a great point that we're going to get to because it's also going to come up for aegon and his armies and it's like well what what, didn't we have a third army what happened to that army like oh we're not talking about them anymore that's kind of (laughs) ominous you know you're like didn't weren't there some stormlanders didn't they have an army, like, around here with us? And Like, what happened to them? Well, yeah, they're gone. That's going to happen. So that's, a <laughs> we'll get to that later. So this whole, another aspect of this is Aegon had already started calling himself King of the Rhoynar. That title that Robert has, that we see the titles, 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 the King of the Rhoyn. That wasn't, like, added when Dorne finally came to the realm. The Targaryen kings were saying that from the beginning. Like, starting with Aegon and all the way through, until it was actually true. It was not true for, you know, 190-ish years but they said it anyway. It was probably the Dornish, probably like shaking their heads, like, "No, you're not. You so are it, absolutely you not." Know, I, I
2: think. Does that mean that technically it's been untrue for more of the Targaryen reign than it's has yeah. true? Good point. Yeah, it's, like it's yeah. not like Danny isn't really like she calls herself that, but she's not there either. So like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it was only true for about for
0: about a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, not true for about almost two hundred. So yeah. <laughs> that's really funny now there's it gets funnier though in the real world as silly as that is the real world is way worse <laughs> like it often is <laughs> at the heart of the hundred years war which of course was england and france going at it multiple different times of course it obviously didn't start and end with the same people <laughs> involved when it's a hundred years here there was the english pla- plantagenet king edward the third who was grandson of king philip the fourth of france they kept Starting at 1340, the Kings of England added King of France <laughs> to their title and kept doing that
1: until the year 1800. <laughs> <laughs> Napoleon finally scared him off. Yeah, Napoleon, you're like, oh, okay, never mind. All uh, right, that was that before Napoleon, I guess. It but, was.
0: He came on. Yeah. It was like another 40, 50 years. Yeah. But still, they saw him coming. They they, they, they felt it coming. They're like, <laughs> something is coming. They had their own little prophecy of, of snow and ice and... <laughs>
1: in Russia
0: In Russia yeah. <laughs> and van- they, they thought of uh vanilla and chocolate and strawberry coming right at them oh that's Neapolitan that's not Napoleon right close yeah, close. yeah very close very close okay would so be
1: a nice substitution to make if you could go back in time
0: yeah instead of invading <laughs> Russia you should have had ice cream that's yeah. better that's that's much better <laughs> okay so let's go into this next section first blood and fire this is how it begins quote
2: The start of the First Dornish War is generally fixed at 4 AC, when Rhaenys Targaryen returned to Dorne. This time she came with fire and blood, just as she had threatened. Riding Meraxes, the queen descended out of a clear blue sky and set the planky town ablaze, the fires leaping from boat to boat until the whole mouth of the green blood was choked with burning flotsam, and the pillar of smoke could be seen as far away as Sunspear. The denizens of the floating town took to the river for refuge from the flames, so fewer than a hundred died in the attack, and most of those from drowning rather than dragon fire. But first blood had been shed.
0: It had indeed. So remember that Town is basically a boat city? The entire thing is a bunch of boats lashed together, shops, homes, everything floats on the river as part of it. I've seen this. I've not obviously at the Town, but I've seen something like this in Cambodia, just large, large platforms, all lashed together, multiple boats and then other platforms and edifices attached to that. It's, it's pretty amazing, actually. And, and not, so it wasn't to this extreme, but, you know, I have seen something like that in the real world. Now, boats are extremely vulnerable to dragons. Anything wooden is, and this isn't moving like a lot of boats. And even moving boats are extremely vulnerable to dragons because, you know, they're not that fast <laughs> compared to a flying dragon. And especially in this era, you see very few anti-dragon type weaponry. There's going to be more of it because, well, people need it. But for a while there, during the before the Targaryen Conquest, uh, between the Century of Blood and the fall of Valyria, there was a time where the world may have for- maybe not forgotten about the threat of dragons, but it wasn't a problem. Like, there weren't dragons coming to attack your cities, or it wasn't a concern. So items like scorpions and these larger bolt throwers might have, uh, there was less demand for them. And thus, there would be fewer people who knew how to make them, and etc. Now, that's obviously going to change. But certainly wasn't Doran wasn't prepared at this point by any means for such a thing. Maybe they should have been. They maybe arguably they should have been. They probably knew that something like this was going to happen. Or maybe they should have known that something like this was going to happen. After all, she promised to return. The Targaryens had obviously shown they were more than willing to do this sort of thing to just attack to basically unprovoked. And so, yeah. And it would have had they sat down to think about where the Targaryens would attack. Well, the Blanky Town is at the mouth of the Green Blood. It's a very kind of obvious target, right? It's it's if you look at the map, you can see where it is. So one of the reasons it's obvious is because it's so vulnerable. Uh, all the ships, all the people, and because Rainies could probably attack it without being spotted from very far away in the first place. She said she comes out of a clear blue sky, but she could have been flying over the ocean where it would have been harder to see her from a distance until it was pretty close until she's right there, and, you know, uh, she probably made some people nervous. They're like, wait, is that a dragon? What, what is that? You know, from a distance. And then as you get closer and closer and you realize that she's moving fast and she's not veering away, and why would she be coming towards Town to, for any reason other than to attack would be like the sinking feeling that some few might have. And then panic might start to spread and then that first blast of flame happens and then you know it's on and then people are jumping in the water right away there's no reason to stick around and wait and that's why the casualties were relatively low i guess is because while she's torching all these things everyone else on the entire platform is jumping off you know so they they actually would have had a decent amount of time not that it makes their lives much easier afterwards but they did have an opportunity to jump off.
1: A couple other factors are, I think it's possible, if not likely, that a large portion had already been evacuated. They, I think there's, I don't think it's unreasonable at all to think that they had an idea that something was coming, right? That not only in general, they, they know the threat has been put out there, but the mobilization of all these forces, that would have been noticed. Like, that's
0: a good point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Even without a particular spy network, I think scouts would have just observed it. They're just, you know, when you mobilize thirty thousand humans, that's going to have effect in surrounding communities. Word's going to spread. But if you do have scouts and spies in place, you would definitely know. And Planky Town would have been a prime target, right? Like, yeah. A, like every city, quote unquote city, every castle, village, whatever might have been on high alert right they that word might have been sent out and Planky Town which would be particularly vulnerable to dragon fire and a big population was all the reasons they w- they went there are the reasons Miria would know it's a place they might go right so yeah, i think there's exactly. a decent chance that there might have been a some sort of plan in place already to to have people moved out. or at least to put them on warning
0: yeah at least like let people know like cuz it's a long time you know they never know when exactly it's going to come but that's a great point about the mobilization of the troops, and like they had to know something was coming. You don't like you, like, and the thirty thousand is the right number. That's how many Reachmen mobilized, and that's just the fighting men. There's obviously other people in the army that are supporting it, and supplies getting to- together, all that yep, other stuff. Exactly. We yeah. can't like, hide even that. if yeah.
1: all the military leaders were lips tight, secretly <laughs> organizing thirty thousand troops. Just the people in town are just going to notice it's happening. All the wives and farmers, yeah. you know, all the, the food being gathered. It's just, that's a huge commotion to not get noticed, to not have word spreads. It also just doesn't
0: really go with Aegon's, like, vibe. He is a, I attack you head on and you know I'm coming. And that's that way there's no doubt as to who's stronger. Because I didn't trick you. I wasn't clever. We took our best. It was strength versus strength and I came out ahead. That's That's how he likes to present his his victories I think so like sneaking up and you know we won because of the element of surprise that's not how he wants to be portrayed he wants to be portrayed as "Oh, I won because I was stronger period <laughs> you know and it's not hard to do when you have Balerion but it, it definitely he was disabused of some of what counts for strength and, and other people's willingness to just meet him head on like this well what if we just don't meet you head on Mr. Giant Dragon you know he's like oh well I don't know, actually. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I win. I mean, and he is—he does seem a little confused by this strategy, even though to us it's kind of obvious. Like, well, yeah, of course you don't go fight the dragons head-on. <laughs> this seems like the the obvious choice, whereas the the folks in, in in Westeros, the rest of Westeros, made
1: the made the silly choice.
0: Anyway, it's pretty it's pretty evil stuff, though, right? Just going in and burning like all these boats and all these people and
1: it is. Don't get me wrong, because I want to point out, even if only a hundred people died there. First of all, only a hundred people. I guess you can say that when it might've been thousands, but it's still awful for a hundred people to die. Yeah. A, B, all the people who live lost their homes and their businesses and their livelihood and everything else, even outside the context of the rest of dorm burning its crops to keep the, the invading army from having anything to pillage. There's, there's no way the rest of that population was just fine. Yeah. I guarantee mm-hmm. you people starved to death people who didn't immediately die of burns, ended up dying of burns, all the other problems that would come with an entire town being burned down. It's, it's not as simple as only a hundred people died. There's a, I just can't imagine the, the drama, the anguish and everything that the rest of that population had to go through in the coming days and weeks and even years to try to rebuild from that. The, the, every one of those hundred people had a mom, a cousin, you know, mm-hmm. like all the families are upset. Yeah. So it's awful. <laughs> yeah. It is really, yeah. But I do wonder. Another thing I wonder is if, especially because it doesn't seem like we're at revenge mode yet, and so far Aegon has just been trying to take out military targets and win quick, easy victories without a lot of losses. He wants to rule the land, not destroy it, right? So I wonder if the dragon circled around a couple times, maybe a couple strafes at a key spot, right, to to, to block off the the, the waterway. Time might have been given for people to escape is what I'm saying. She was
0: letting people get away. She's right. Okay. Yeah. Maybe <clears throat> that's entirely possible. Yeah. You got to throw that out there as a possibility or, uh, or it could be a lie. It could be a lot. Maybe that maybe a lot more than hundred people died. And that's just what was recorded. I don't you, see the Dawn point of didn't that. I want
1: the numbers to get out. I or, don't see the yeah. point
0: of that given how many people died and how vicious this war got. It's like, oh, but we're, this makes it look a little bit nicer now. There's just, it's like one raindrop in a storm because of how vicious this whole thing was. So. But it was at the beginning, so so maybe. But yeah, this was an attack. Like you say, Sean, this wasn't a military target. This was an attack on people. This is like just burning a bunch of villages, oh, important villages, like crucial villages, food supplying villages. One of the great things about A Song of Ice and Fire is the prose is so strong. There's so many great quotes, so many lines that stick with you in the real world that you can refer to as touchstones. And one of them is here. You were just referring to. What do you have left when your everything you have is destroyed? All you have left is your life. Miri Mazdoor has a quote on that. Look to your call, she says, uh when and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. Like when you everything you love, every person you love, uh, all the things you knew, like what good is life at that point? You may as well be dead. Like your life is maybe not even worth living at that point. And that's that's the point she's making and that's the kind of the point you're making here. Now it's not quite as bad. They didn't she didn't these people didn't lose all their own people there's still a lot of dornish left and there's still people they would like you said they probably still have cousins and mothers it's not as not quite as overwhelming as what happened to miriam as her entire world was in that village but the point is it's very similar and the destruction was strong no matter how whether rainies gave them a little time or whether she just went full bore right away it turned into a full-blown conflagration. There was choking of the ships burning in the in the outcrop of the harbor. There, it was it was a like a dam basically. Picture uh, the Battle of the Blackwater, right? The ships choked in the harbor. There, it's very similar, just dragon fire instead of wildfire. There would even be. Non-normal looking flames because Meraxes would be shooting silver flames from her maw. I would assume. She's silver and that's usually how it works, right? So you would even have that going. You would even have the odd colored flames mixed with the normal colored flames. So a lot of Battle of Blackwater vibes there. And this is when it gets kind of horrific from a a historical perspective. There's at least two things that come up here that would be in the minds of a lot of Roynish people, especially the Dornish people with Roynish blood, I should say, but just any Dornish person. Because for one thing, it was Nymeria's burning of the ships that symbolized the end of their journey. She said, okay, this is we've made it to Dorne after all of our long wanderings, our odyssey, basically. And this is where we're staying. And to symbolize that and to truly invest in our new home, we're going to destroy our ships. We're going to burn all our ships. It's a famous moment. It's portrayed on our maps <laughs> and uh it's just a great scene from westeros history and here it is kind of turned around on them like yeah now you're stuck here <laughs> all your ships we burn them and it's that that whole it's your new home is being turned against them it's being inverted and the other memory would be, of course, farther back the beginning of Nymeria's journey when all their cities were burned by dragons when they had to leave in the first place. And now here they go again, they're all living on a river and these dragons come and burn all their river cities and drive them away in their ships and they flee. And that's so this is, this is a lot of like historical trauma that's being raised by this attack, especially considering it's the same. It's descendants of those same people. You have the descendants of the Valyrians inflicting a similar level of devastation and unjust warfare on the descendants of the Roinar. It's it's pretty heavy. And, and there'd be nothing they could do. In the longer term, I, like I pointed out, yeah, they might get a hold of some scorpions, some, some bolt throwers, some extra bows here and there. But here, early on, they may not have had much waiting. Even with the notion that there might have been something coming. Even with the idea that they should be prepared, they clearly didn't have a whole lot. Uh, so, yeah, it's... It's pretty heavy now. One other, speaking of Danny and Mary Mosdour, yet another parallel comes to mind here, which is that Danny has the vision of the crones of the Dosh Kaleen bowing before her while dripping wet, which makes me think of this, is because they, I, 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 feel like they jump into the water, the the womb of the world, to maybe escape Danny's conflagration that she brings on them. Uh, which might be happening in the winds of winter. Uh, that vision will have to get fulfilled somehow, and the only reason I could ever perceive of them being wet was because they w- were underwater or they jumped into the water per- potentially. Well, you of fire. haven't
2: fantasized about the ladies of the Dosh calling. <laughs> <huh? laughs>
1: kind of different kind of wet, huh? Yeah. Yikes! <laughs> they could have been trapped in the rain.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the rain. Right. Yeah, because yeah, we all I know meant. rainfall yeah. is very. We're a PG show. Very Go common <laughs> in the
0: Dothraki Sea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rainies didn't come alone this time, though. She didn't just come with a dragon and start burning the Planky Town. Well, she, she was- didn't
2: come alone this time. She came with Aegon? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm
0: done. <laughs> Your mind's in the. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, she was sort of by herself, but. Because she's the only one attacking the Planky Town, but there were two other invasion forces that came simultaneously. <laughs> that came simultaneously. Uh, <laughs> oh. you're, you just can't get away from this now. Anyway, <laughs> quote:
2: Elsewhere, Ori Sparathian led one thousand picket knights up the Bone Way, whilst Aegon himself marched through the Prince's Pass at the head of an army thirty thousand strong, led by near two thousand mounted knights and 300 lords and bannermen. Lord Harlan Tyrell, the warden of the south, was heard to say that they had more than enough power to smash any Dornish army that tried to stand before them, even without Aegon and Balerian. No doubt he had the right of that, but the issue was never proved, for the Dornish men never offered battle. Instead, they withdrew before King Aegon's host, burning their crops in the field and poisoning Every well.
0: Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting strategy, too. I love that point of this guy. It just goes to show how unprepared how naive they were Any army that tries to stand before us will smack. well none of them tried to stand before you just simple as that It really just is that simple like well, we're just not gonna stand before you We're just not gonna face you like why would we so the vast majority though? It says it's a, it's a very uneven pair of advance uh, of of invasion forces you've got 30,000 going through the Prince's Pass and 1,000 through the Bone Way. It kind of makes sense in a way because the Bone Way is a lot harder. It's a lot nastier, a lot stonier. It's called the Stone Way. The Bone Way is the nickname because of how deadly it is, but it's still not a good idea. Less men, more men is still a bad idea. <laughs> it's Still really difficult. And there were apart from what's being described here with the burning of the crops and the and the fields and the poisoning of the wells there was also night attacks raids rocks being rolled down from the heights things like that all sorts of little things that would really add up and maybe they don't kill that many people but they really really impact the morale of the army you're up you're in your tent you're just like worried about that You've you got anxiety about where the next attack is going to come from. And you might have gone in confident. You might have been like, yeah, we're all marching. Look at how big our army is. Our leaders are really confident. That that confidence will, will trickle down to you. Maybe you're already confident anyway. But as time passes, with every poisoned well, every burned field, every day that passes without any sort of real progress, and you're just marching around and the Dornish aren't fighting you, Your confidence is going to start to ebb away. Like, this is the thing I said at the beginning about putting yourself in their place and thinking about how this is going. You start off feeling great about it, but then you start, there's some cracks in your confidence. And then it starts to, like, full-blown fall apart. Because it's hard to be confident when you're not confident and then throw in hunger. (laughs) <laughs> like, think about how hard it is to, to to just do anything properly when you're hungry. I mean, I'm a great example of that. I get pretty hangry. I would be hopeless in this scenario. And some people wouldn't have been confident going in. Some of them would have been frightened from the get go. And this would just make them like pure panic attacks, anxiety attacks. And then, and then it would snowball to use a metaphor that is entirely inappropriate for Dorn, <laughs> Snowball. But... <laughs> the hunger, the anxiety, the lack of sleep, all these things would build like they'd get worse and worse. Your anxiety would grow. Your lack of sleep would fuel the anxiety, your panic, your inability. And then you're just not a very good soldier, right? If you ever were in the first place.
1: (laughs) Keep in mind, some of these things, you know, you would have the common soldiers, if you will, but the leaders, they would go through this too. They would also suddenly have extra anxiety and fear and be losing sleep. You'd have to set up new guards systems, new like night watches or whatever, just all they have to do is attack one time in the middle of the night and kill one person. Now, 10 people are not getting sleep every night now because they have to pull guard duty to prevent against that. And kind of like how I said before, for the, uh, those hundred killed at Plankytown, each one of them would have had a family, a friend, uh, you know, a lot more was, there was more loss than just each of those person's lives. It was what they were contributing to the community and their family and everything. Well, when one soldier dies, they've got a buddy. They've got a teammate, a sergeant, a subordinate. They have, you know, friends. They have a responsibility. They they were supposed to pull guard duty tomorrow night or sharpen a sword to feed the horde. Whatever they were doing, now someone else has to do it. So, plus they heat, you know, on and on. It's, yeah, it's so much. that, that-
0: There's so many factors We can't even name them all. That, that's a really good point, Sean, about the, the way the duties will have to be Done, even as you become less capable of doing them, whether or not men have been lost or not, which they probably have like just anyone who's like ever worked a shift at a restaurant or a store when you're understaffed. Just picture that. But but put your imagine it being a life and death situation instead. It's awful the non-life-and-death version of this, but the life-and-death version of it is kind of, unless you've been in it, it's probably pretty much unfathomable. And this is this style of warfare, warfare is familiar to us. We've all heard of guerrilla warfare before. We've talked about it before. You've probably talked about it or heard about it on other shows or elsewhere in your life. But the, the Dornish especially, are, are, we even associate this with them, and we have been doing that ever since early in A Song of Ice and Fire. Ever Even before these histories were explored, you kind of got the vibe that that was what Doran was about. That's their style of warfare. You know, we've we've seen it just based on parallels to the real world. is kind of what you expected. But the rest of the Seven Kingdoms, they saw the the way that everybody fought Aegon and expected it to be the same. And it just wasn't. <laughs> and yeah, Doran worships the same gods as the rest of Westeros. So they have knights, lords, and ladies. So, you know, to be fair, there was a lot of things in place that would make it seem like they might do things similarly. But there was so much that that showed it how wrong they were. Because even if you say, okay, Aegon and Rhaenys and well Visenya's not here, but even her advice would have been part of the campaign planning strategy. Okay, so they're not used to guerrilla campaigns. Maybe they didn't expect that, but their allies did. Their allies should have the Reachmen, the Stormlanders. Where was their advice? Where was their maybe, maybe Aegon didn't listen to them or or many of the veterans of the Stormlands died fighting Argalac alongside Argalac the Argar. That was a very bloody uh campaign amidst the whole conquest which we talked about with Jim McGeon in our uh battle of the in the battle of the Stormlands that battle of uh, last storm rather. And so maybe a lot of that wisdom that would have been because it's really the Stormlands that fought even more. They they had the really vicious relationship Argalac and Myria. So maybe or his veterans would have been the ones that had the most to say that Aegon might have listened to, but they just weren't, they weren't there. They were dead. They all, they died next to Meraxes and oris and, and Argilac and, uh, well not next to, next to the first two who lived and Oris who didn't. <laughs> so.
1: What might've outweighed their potential wisdom might've been a quest for revenge or, uh, bolstered confidence since they had allies going with them. So
0: that's true. And and so many men lost in the field of fire as well. So like this maybe some smarter Reachmen, those who might have known better, might have died. So yeah. Now there was some experience Targaryen's had with this. Like remember Heron the Black Suns did a surprise attack at the Battle of the Wailing Widows and all that. But it wasn't it wasn't anything like this. And those were maybe like one offs this is like a constant thing. Like every night, they feared night attacks. I don't get the impression that Aegon's campaign was worried about that in their march through the Riverlands. It was like, oh, they got us this one time, but that's very unlikely to happen again. They, like, for one thing, Aegon's chased after them and burned them. <laughs> so it's like, well, these say, it certainly won't be the same group doing that. And Heron's sons were amongst them. So, like, yeah, the opportunity just wasn't there. It's, it's not Dorne. The, they don't have mountains to hide in. They don't have mountain rocks to roll down on you when you're in the Riverlands. You know, it just the, the terrain is totally different ballgame. And of course, it's smarter. We've said this over and over. We probably will. It's, it's, yes, this is clearly a better way to fight dragons. Hiding in caves means the dragons can't scout you out and see you from a distance, uh, which was also a factor in the, in the Stormlands with the trees, which is why they burned all the trees that comes back to our Vietnam example and the napalm and all that. So are the Dornish being smart? I'd say yes, to a certain extent, but I think a bigger aspect is just the Targaryens and the allies are being dumb and the Dornish are just like, yeah, let them be dumb. Let's allow them their dumbness to ruin them. And we'll just play around that. So, yeah, I don't think it was an advanced strategy, by but I don't think the Dornish were doing something they hadn't done before. This wasn't some new, adaptive strategy. It was just used against an enemy that they hadn't faced before, or or at least since the days of Valyria, but not in Dorne. What do you think about that, Sean? Do you Would you say it's more about the Targaryens being naive or
1: it, it, semantics, maybe? A little of both. I, I want to point out one thing that might be different about this is that Dorne is doing it as a nation, instead of like, you know, towns on the borders where these skirmishes happen sometimes, right? It's different for all of Dorne to be doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, and I, again, I do think that, so, you know, maybe that's way, a a difference, if you will, maybe Dorn ramped up, you know, just the coordination to have these different towns be emptied out takes a, a, a level that wouldn't have been there just because like, you know, some some march army some you know some some conflict up in some mountain passes that doesn't make the people in Town do anything differently does that make sense yeah
0: that's true that's
1: so true. so door doing it as a whole might be something that's new or underestimated or and and also you know i think that that it, it does seem like aegon's forces are making some mistakes but i still think that they it would have been hard to really see how all this was gonna go right even yeah. if they had tried to uh, amend some of these mistakes like i said like say they had loaded up boats with supplies and then uh, the boats are waiting there on the Northern coast of, of Dorne, They're like, oh, it wouldn't have mattered. They never got there anyway. And there's a lot of mistakes they might've accounted for and it wouldn't have been enough to really stop uh, the, the all out effort that Dorne was going through. Or uh, it, I can even imagine some people just like in Dorne, despite all the losses, Dorne, as bad as it is for this force coming down, it, it's, it's especially right here in the beginning, I think the overall losses for Dorn were probably greater, but it never made Dorn want to back down. Right? I don't think all these troops that have been in conflict with Dorn forever are like, oh, well, they beat us in one battle, or we might lose some soldiers. They, they might get us with a grill attack. This. I guess we shouldn't do it. Like, Dates are just like in real world when people have grudges, when there's generations-long you know conflicts have been going on people make mistakes they just charge in with this foolhardy braveness just because they want revenge you know
0: yeah hate is a really powerful drug isn't it (laughs) yeah (laughs) it really is so and and there's some other considerations too again we try really hard to put ourselves in their minds uh, both sides of this and all minds in between the people who were in control or just following along and it's, it's sometimes you can't do that, but we do, we try to do our best. And I think that if you try to have like the mindset of Aegon, who's ultra confident, ultra like macho almost would be to use a modern term, he's not going to look at this as something he can back down on. Ny- again, Nymeria united Dorne, and she didn't have dragons. She didn't have a big army. She had refugees, right? She had way less than Aegon was trying. And she did this. How's Aegon going to look at that and be like, well, if she can do it, I I can do it. And I should be able to do it easier because I have a lot more than she did. Right. From his perspective, from what he thinks power derives from, from where he thinks strength comes from, the way he approaches these problems is very different than how my Nymeria did. Nymeria played people off each other. She used alliances. a lot. She had didn't have these obviously overwhelming powers to use. <laughs> so... She had to use more cleverness and, and things like that. Not that Aegon wasn't clever. It's just he didn't have to be clever. And, and we, we don't use your clever muscles. They atrophy, right? So he, he also that also means he's not as clever in deciphering his opponent's cleverness and predicting cleverness. He expects them to be a little more like him and face him head on and just this is how we prove who the strongest is. It's me. <laughs> but so he's got to be like, this woman did this? but I can't do it? Like, that's crazy to him, you know? And it's crazy to a lot of Westerosi because they're also very much drinking that same Kool-Aid of uh, there's definitely very a woman can't conquer something that a man can't conquer. Like, that's crazy to them, right? That doesn't make any sense in their worldview. Especially when there's also women on their side with dragons. So, like, they've got both of that things covered. They've got all that covered. (laughs) So they just can't understand. They can't conceive losing here. They've got the bigger army. They've got the un unbroken advantage of dragons. They've got so much. They just even though we can look at it and say, yeah, that there's also so many problems, but they just don't see those problems as being able to overcome their advantages. So who knows how long it had been since there had been a full on war against Dorne? You know, we we've heard that Argilac had turned back a Dornish invasion early in his reign, which is pretty interesting. And given how long Miria has been alive, I mean, she's in her, she's not going to die till her 90s. And she, she was probably the one that launched that invasion or was at least the her father or mother did. And so she's got a lot of experience with this. She may have uh, some experience in ways of warfare between these the kingdoms that uh, we aren't able to suss out and things that even Aegon and his counselors wouldn't have been aware of. So that's pretty big deal, too. Her her long-term wisdom and experience is something that we should assume played a big role, even if we can't be detailed about how it manifested as a strategy. But maybe this whole avoidance strategy was just her plan from the beginning. It was like, well, this is how we're going to do it. I mean, they must have been confused that no one met them in the passes. Like, wouldn't this is a good place to fight? Like, if you're going to stop an army from entering your territory, it's in this narrow area where they can't use they can't spread out and get around you like their 30,000 men can't envelop you but they chose not to even fight them in the passes where numbers wouldn't wouldn't tell which might have given more overconfidence to the invaders. like look they won't even face us they won't even take take their best defensive positions when they're given to them they won't even use that so they're they must be afraid they would tell themselves that right they're afraid That, that that's what this mindset is if you're the type of people that you always decide decide things on pitched battle and someone won't have a pitched battle with you you tell themselves you're you, you tell them you tell yourself they're afraid that's we we saw that we've seen that a few times in in a song of ice and fire as well
1: by the way they were afraid but that doesn't mean that they gave up right right very important uh, distinction true a lot of times you make some great decisions out of fear right
0: <laughs> yeah like why would like why would you again it's it's being afraid of something doesn't mean you're a coward or that you shouldn't be afraid of it. Yeah, I'm afraid of dragons. If they were real, I'd be afraid of that. It doesn't make me lesser. It makes me, like, sensible. It makes like, normal. Like, yes, you should be afraid of something that can kill you with, uh, like, 0% effort, you know? (laughs) By accident. Just, like, it sneezes and you're dead. You know? Like, that's that's what we're dealing with here. If only the Targaryens had a, a some sort of beverage or something that made them smarter, something that, that helped them think through things more <laughs> thoroughly. Like, wine? <laughs> no, I don't think <laughs> wine would help with that. Magic wine might, maybe would. But no, I'm talking about magic mind. I, I, I've One thing I've noticed in the difference between drinking it and not drinking it, like I've, we've had it around off and on long enough. We've got another shipment coming in shortly. I've been at without it for a little while. I kind of noticed Like when we first had it and then I didn't have it, I've gone off and on with it a few times now that I can sort of tell that I need it again. (laughs) I want, want, Even if it's only a small boost in my focus and who would ever measure something, maybe it's a large boost in my focus. Uh, You know, you don't want to give that up. Once you have something, once you're a little, once you have something that makes you function a little better, it's... You want to keep that going.
2: Yeah, I so. mean, tell us a coffee drinker. Yes, it makes it a very, yeah, it's not, not abnormal. Wrong.
1: <laughs> I just made an order of Magic Mind myself last night, by the way. I just ran nice. out of what they had sent us. So
2: It's like, yeah,
0: like I share I was saying with coffee, it's, yes, coffee is addictive. But the benefits are still there. Like, you want those benefits and it's addictive. So <laughs> getting rid of the addictive part is good because you can still have those benefits. <laughs> you can still get the boost, the focus, the clarity, but... With less of the jitters and the, like, I gotta have this feeling, the the borderline addictiveness, if not full-blown addictiveness. So... That's pretty valuable, I think.
2: I think it's tastier, too, but that's also a very much your mileage may vary.
0: Yeah, that's very true. Taste really does vary. But that's one thing I like about Magic Mind, too, is it mixes really well. You can have it straight. Sean often says he has it straight, but you've mixed it with your in your concoctions as well. And I've done the same thing. Have it over ice, have it as a shot, mix it in with other juices, just have it with water, just dilute it, you know, that's fine, too, which is cool, too. Like, just like coffee, you've got a bajillion ways to drink it. And Magic Mind, same thing. Only this January, they help you gear up to crush your 2024 New Year's resolutions fully focused. It's a good time for that. If you're making changes in your life in January, it's a a good time for that. Everybody's thinking about it. So why not get on that groupthink bandwagon when it's something positive? Do that. You know, like I'm not a groupthink guy, but sometimes we all do the same thing because it's smart, (laughs) because it makes sense. It's good. I, I think New Year's resolutions are one of those things where, you know, you can get a little too far with it. You can get a little too gung ho i i've spoken about this before set yourself a target don't set a goal because goals if you don't reach it you could be disappointed but if you get a target is like a general idea and if you get if you if you do pretty well you can still pump yourself up a little and keep your motivation going and not go ah oh, i could not keep that going ah oh, i suck you know give yourself a softer landing and magic mind can help with that you get one month for free when you're subscribing for three months at magicmind.com slash Jan Westeros. That's J A N, like the month, Westeros. And if you add in the code Westeros20, you can get up to 75% off total because the Westeros20 will get you 20% more off. It's only going to last till the end of January. So hurry up before it goes away. That's magicmind.com slash Westeros. Let's get into the ground invasion. We've talked about the first airstrike on Planky Town. But we saw and we discussed the troop dispositions, 30,000 men going south through the Prince's Pass, 1,000 picked knights heading through the Bone Way. And here's what happened next. Quote.
2: The invaders found the Dornish watchtowers in the Red Mountains slighted and abandoned. In the high passes, Aegon's vanguard found its way barred by a wall of sheep carcasses shorn of all wool and too rotted to eat. The king's army was already running short of food and fodder by the time they emerged from the Prince's Pass to face the Dornish Sands. There, Aegon divided his forces, sending Lord Tyrell south against Uthor Uller, Lord of the Hellholt, whilst he himself turned eastward to besiege Lord Fowler in his mountain fastness, Skyreach.
0: So yeah, as I said the Prince's Pass is the western one, an easier route, though certainly not easy, and there is an army waiting in the Prince's Pass. It's starting at the start of the Winds of Winter and another in the Bone Way. They have standing orders to either open go into the Seven Kingdoms and at attack or or not. And it's an interesting sort of situation that's developing there. Now, again, I said this would be a great place to confront an invading army and the reason they didn't was balerion like this their defenses aren't what they normally would be with a big old black dragon just raining fire down on them it wouldn't work it wouldn't work
1: that way that this would normally be a great place to confront an army yeah but it's not a great place to confront an army and a dragon
0: yes <laughs> good point good way to say it good said sean now we he, so aegon split his army makes a lot of sense to do that because you're, it's so hard to get food. And you you have army splits up. It's its going to different places to gather its food. Problem is, there's still so little food to gather. As it says, the army was already short of food and fodder just going through the pass. And this is just the beginning, right? So already the problems are beginning. And again, I don't know how the split was it with the 50-50 split. Did Aegon take 15,000 guys and 15,000 went south? I don't know. But it was probably pretty close to even. Mm he had belarian with him so maybe he gave them some more soldiers on the other hand Tyrell's going to go through the desert so maybe he wants to have fewer men i don't know either way it wasn't smart (laughs) it didn't work out this wall of sheep carcasses is really wild right taunting them with wasted food like look we we are not afraid we're not going to run out of food you're not going to get food locally because this is it this is this is the local food all dumped in front of you rotting this is what you have available to you it's 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 very ominous and very symbolic and it's quite a statement. They're like, Look, we don't need this. You're not gonna find this. <laughs> this is what's waiting for you, you know?
1: <laughs> a couple of the things. One is that would be a very difficult and disgusting barrier to try to get through, right? Yeah. And to set They'd up They probably Ooh. would have preferred a bunch <laughs> of rocks or something, right? Like that's yeah. like think of the morale of the soldiers that had to deal with that. And maybe even sickness and disease that got spread from it. I don't know. But also Nina points out that, this kind of feeds into what I was saying earlier they couldn't have just done that last night right
2: yeah that's not one day sheep, yeah, that's a, a one lot day, of sheep
1: think what it would take to physically get all the sheep there to have them shorn and be there long enough to rot they had to have seen this invasion coming they this is some preparation time they had
0: right You're right yeah instead of sending their army there they sent the wall of sheep <laughs> And this would be a lesson that Aegon's great, 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 great grandson, Daron the First, the Young Dragon, learned very well. He used a goat track to bypass this sort of thing. Not just, not necessarily walls of dead sheep, but scouts and mountain passes and watchtowers. Which, by the way, one of these watchtowers is probably the site of the Tower of Joy. Because the Tower of Joy is in the Princess Pass. Now, of course, Tower Joy is just a nickname Rhaegar gave to one particular watchtower. It's It wouldn't have any sort of defining features at this point if it even existed, but entirely possible. I mean, a watchtower is in a place, is usually put pl- put in a place because of the terrain, and that wouldn't have changed after a couple hundred years, most likely. It might have, but probably not. So, very high likelihood that the tower was had been there a long time or one had been in its place if it had maybe, you know, fallen and been rebuilt or something.
1: Was that goat pass revealed by a Dornish Trader by chance?
0: You know, it might have been, but we—I don't think we know. Uh, it may have been, you know, it's information just a gathered. Three hundred parallel, you know. Oh yes, you're <laughs> right. Yes, the Ephialtes, I think, was the name of that trader. By the way, I highly recommend the book *Gates of Fire*. Uh, the the movie Three Hundred, based on the graphic novel Three Hundred. It was originally going to be based on the book *Gates of Fire*, which is way way better. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I it's it's historical fiction rather than you know a. a basically a comic book which i have nothing against comic books but they don't portray history very well (laughs) you know history is better for portraying history than than graphic art i think so it could get there it can't yeah Yeah, Yeah. like the two to get like read them both you know like they're both (laughs) they're both very entertaining but i think one is more a lot more accurate we'll say (laughs) uh so so that's really wild i mean this whole sheep thing and and you're right to say that that's part of their strategy the strategy of denial don't meet them in the field don't let the dragon destroy your armies make it hard for them in any other way make it gross make it nasty make it unpleasant make it stink make it hot take away the water take away the food all the stuff that an army needs now, remember, they, th- they thought that they had planned around this. Remember, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about the weather and how, like, ah, oh, it'll be autumn heading into autumn. Like, it's going to be getting, not only will, is it cooler now, but it's going to get cooler during the campaign because we're getting deeper and deeper into autumn and closer to winter. However, here's how that worked out for the Tyrell host. Quote.
2: The Dornish sun proved unrelenting as Lord Tyrell marched toward Hellholt. in such heat Men drink more, and every waterhole and oasis in the army's path had been poisoned. Horses began to die, more every day, followed by their riders. The proud knights discarded their banners, their shields, their very armor. Lord Tyrell lost a quarter of his men and almost all his horses to the Dornish Sands, and when at last he reached the Helholt, he found it abandoned.
0: I think this is a part of the reason Doran is so popular in the fandom is stuff like this where they're willing to ruin all their stuff to protect their people. Every little bit of item, of food, of water, all of it is just ammunition to save the humans.
2: I would say I agree with you. I think some people, maybe Sean perhaps, uh, would argue against that and say, well, did it really protect their people in the long run? Did they, did people die of starvation themselves? Like, did they? hurt themselves by doing this i don't know but I, I do think some people probably would make that counterpoint that maybe that's what they consider their honor their are noble but actually people are just gonna die from this
0: yeah maybe yeah maybe but
2: maybe maybe we're wrong and maybe like no one died of starvation no one would like no families livelihoods was ruined by them doing this like no sheep maybe with ruined <laughs> life
0: the sheep with the with shot like adding on to your idea was sean pointing out very accurately and likely that they planned the sheep thing for a while how long have they been stashing food knowing yeah. this might have been coming like they may have been preparing for winter a dragon's winter rather than <laughs> you know a, a different t- a sort of w- preparation so yeah they've like we've we've given the listeners today many reasons to guess correctly i think that they knew it was coming you've pointed out there's several details here that show that so this is this is an obvious way to prepare for if you're gonna go hide in the caves Put food, lots of food and water in the caves. <laughs> you know, If you're going to poison your wells, you better get a lot of water out of there first before that wa- water is undrinkable for I, I don't know how wa- many years.
2: Yeah, like my other question is maybe they poisoned the wells knowing exactly what to do to neutralize it when they needed it to not be poisoned. Oh, so yeah. it's not poisoned when they come back. They know that, mm. oh, you put this chemical in it and it, it does that. Or that they again knew that it would poison it for... How, yeah they, they, year, they did it before five. and
0: it was poisoned for three years and so that's yeah there that's, might yeah. be
2: various things like that um, it's but like yeah, I when think, the i think we should give them the benefit of the doubt yeah that they knew what they were doing uh it
0: can be pretty bad yeah i mean you can the, these like in marine they cut down the olive groves to mm-hmm. provide to keep food away from danny's army knowing that it would be 30 years before those yeah. trees could be replaced and growing olives again
2: and I, whereas in that case i think that was a bad i think they, that was their, a bad choice
0: that was yeah see that's yeah that's different. Yeah, so I, I don't give
2: them benefit the doubt there i guess because i i do think that those that food is old. yeah that's
0: good that's 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 uh, two generations ish before that yeah they need that that's that's the, the rich slavers can get food elsewhere yeah but mm, yeah it's, it is a different consideration you're right
2: it,
1: some of this reminds me of our hardcore houses episode when i i, I you know my attempt to define hardcore is that when things that would normally get in someone's way, you know, if someone's determined to win, if you will, right, whatever their mission is that here, like, you're going to win this war against Aegon, that, you know, if you're, if you're, there's certain things that most people would be held back by like super cold weather or hot weather or not eating human flesh or, you know, something <laughs> like that, <Aww>. right? <laughs> or not wanting to sacrifice your innocent population, not wanting to hamstring a whole generation by, ruining all the crops for a year or two or poisoning well things like that that you know all this stuff might make darn Dorn hardcore and a lot of people might appreciate that but there is this balance between peace and uh i don't know prestige or legacy or independence or whatever it is Dorn thinks they're fighting for and i think they went too far with it it is a and even if they did plan ahead and so they might have had some food reserves and stash extra water but how much could it have been there's still no way that they're not hamstringing the next year's
0: yeah. uh, population which which uh, they would rather they feel like that's the better sacrifice than sacrificing humans or and or independence same thing yeah, you know yeah.
1: I also want to point out what did it take for the invading army to realize that the well was poisoned
0: oh they yeah how many people
1: with all these desperately thirsty mm. people and they start drinking a water like do they do they drink it and kill over in 30 seconds and it warns everyone else not to do it or does it take a day or two to get diarrhea and slowly four days after you left the well people are dropping dead are they boiling the, the, the water next well and, and now then... you're still desperately thirsty and you do it again like how many times did a bunch of people have to die or get terribly ill before they realize the whales are poisoned. Like, how could they even know it? You know? Well, what?
0: Yeah. What kind of poison are we talking about here? Are they just fouled or is it like, like you say, is it something that you could boil out or is it
1: or not? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Did they throw a dead sheep carcass down in there to put rotting bacteria and uh, and, and so they could see it immediately, you know, not to drink it, or was it a hidden poison or was it a deadly poison?
0: Probably, probably all of the above, you know, different different wells, different, like they're not going to have some like standard supply of well poison that just everyone uses.
1: You know? <laughs> yeah, just each town did whatever they could to poison their local wells. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like Shay said, some of the smarter ones or advanced ones might have had a way to poison it and then uh, an antidote for it. But um, my other thought here is, just again, it, how damaging it would be to morale for the horses to be dying. You gotta oh, understand yeah. a horse, I mean, maybe a bunch of like privileged noble lords don't really care about their horses, but I feel like a lot of them would. I feel like a horse has gotta be cared for. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's it's as much as like a pet, like think how much food, it's an investment. Almost any angle you look at it for your horse to die, you need it to ride, to carry your equipment. You've probably been with it a significant portion of your life. You've given it a lot of food and time and have a bond with it you know like yeah and for the for it to die would be devastating on so many levels and it's happening on a mass scale I don't know it just makes me sick to my stomach thinking about this whole scenario unfolding even someone like
0: Sandor Clegane, a like a, a pretty mean unsympathetic you know guy you know I mean he's sympathetic in terms of the fandom but like he doesn't have a lot of sympathy for others is what I mean yeah <laughs> doesn't have a lot of attachments he loves it he loves his horse stranger you know he may not he wouldn't say it but he really valued that horse. That's that, maybe he, that's what he would say. Like, I got to get that horse back. He went back into the riot to get that horse. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And Dunk was brought to tears losing his horse. And he, this is just a memory of his. We don't see in it. Dorn, in Dorn, right? In <laughs> Dorn. And, other, and he kind of <laughs> remembers some of the Dornishmen were, were sort of like confused or even laughing at him for losing his horse. But
1: You can't afford to waste tears in Dorn. You can't afford to yeah. waste water on crying. <laughs> yeah. So
0: without lifting a finger, Dorn itself... I mean, you could say they lift a finger, lifting dead sheep carcasses. But without fighting <laughs> anyone, <laughs> without meeting this Tyrell army, some 15-ish thousand men marched to the hell halt and a quarter of them died, and who knows how many horses. Like, that's like 4,000 men dying in, on this march. Like, that's, there's no way they saw that coming. They, they, could not, they would not have just advanced into that if they knew it was going to be that bad. If you've seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven... There's a scene kind of like this, where a crusader army is just heading out into the desert to chase Saladin. And uh, Orlando Bloom's character is, and, and several people he's with are just like, you guys, this is so dumb. Don't go chasing a experienced desert general in the desert. Like, that's insanity. And one of the guys is like, who's a knight, who's always like, well, yeah, it doesn't seem the brightest idea, but I'm not going to disobey the king you know like of course i'm going to follow the king into battle like what other choices there like that's it would be worse to 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 disobey the king like somehow this this disloyalty would be worse than not walking into certain death <laughs> you know like wait a minute what is this mindset but that's that's how it is like that's what really happened i mean they were portraying something that that really happened basically in in real history these guys were overconfident they they're proud they think God is with them, you know, which I don't know how much that part of of things was in play here. The whole faith aspect for the Westerosi, they might have been praying to the seven gods, but they would know that this isn't a religious opponent. They know that their enemies are also worshiping the same gods. So it's not like they can't necessarily expect the seven to be on their side over the Dornish. Some of them probably did, (laughs) but it's not as clear cut as there's two very different religions at work here anyway Saladin did the same thing he used the desert to great advantage didn't fight didn't let them fight head-on-head battles just let them starve and thirst to death and that's much easier so the green blood seizing of the green blood is really important that's the river of course by having rainies caused great devastation there maybe daron the young dragon took that lesson amongst many of the things that didn't go well during this initial targaryen invasion when he did his you know, 150 years later, he somewhat learned from his ancestors' mistakes. Some of them maybe he didn't learn, but he he did learn some of these other things and he had a lot more preparation for the heat and the dehydration and the water. It was still a problem, but it was not something that just broke them. He was prepared for it. Now, and there's details missing from Daron's campaign that we will eventually hopefully get in Fire and Blood 2, aka Blood and Fire, and we'll return to that topic then, but some of those details aren't given. it just implied strongly that though the sun was nasty, they didn't suffer nearly as much as this army was due to better preparations. That's how it was going for the Tyrell army very badly. What about the new Lord of Storm's End, Oris Baratheon? How is it going in the bone way?
2: Quote. Orys Baratheon's attack fared little better. His horses struggled on the stony slopes of the narrow, twisting passes, but many balked completely when they reached the steepest section of the road, where the Dornish had chiseled steps into the mountains. Boulders rained down on the Hand's Knights from above, the work of defenders the Stormlanders never saw. Where the Boneway crossed the River Will, Dornish archers suddenly appeared as the column was making its way across a bridge, and arrows rained down by the thousands. When Lord Oris ordered his men to fall back, a massive rock fall cut off their retreat. With no way forward and no way back, the Stormlanders were butchered like hogs in a pen. Oris Baratheon himself was spared, along with a dozen other lords thought worth the ransom. But they found themselves captives of Will of Will, the savage mountain lord called Widow Lover.
0: Fared a little better, it says. That's an understatement. <laughs> they all, they were, quote, butchered like hogs in a pen. Yeah, that's, they fared about as bad as it could. That's
1: yeah that's it seems like they fared much worse I'm almost (laughs) confused by that phrasing that there must be something more to this or something like I I like I legit wonder if there was a portion of the army that didn't get trapped between the boulder fall or whatever because I don't
0: know yeah (laughs) it's such a it is such an understatement I mean technically more men died on the way to Hellholt because there was just so many more of them so maybe that's the point like up to like 4,000 men died on that March. And this was all of them that died in this one, but there's only a thousand of them. So like, arguably that's, I mean, more loss of life. I don't know, but, but either way it's, it is, it's <laughs> if you're a Targaryen or Baratheon fan, that's about as bad as it gets. If you're a Dornish fan, you're like, yeah, get them. That was great. What a win, you know, terrain being used to huge advantage when done properly picture. I'm mean, just picture it. It says you're crossing a bridge over a river. This isn't some large stone bridge. Surely it might even be like a rope bridge. but. But it might be a wooden bridge or something anyway so obviously there's only so many people that can cross at once you don't have like masses of men all crossing the bridge at once at least you shouldn't
1: I mean, make it a make it a big stone bridge still how many <laughs> people were getting across at a time still what do you do when the yeah. rain- arrows start raining down you know
0: yeah and it, it seems as if from nowhere these arrows start raining down it would be a panic uh, uh, maybe uh, but uh, uh you know at worst but at best People are hurrying quickly and unable to get off quick enough to, to get cover. So some people may have some shields and they're doing what they can, but then you're getting close to, let's say, let's say you're one of the men in that press and you manage to escape. You get off the bridge and you're retreating back away from the bridge and then an avalanche comes at you the direction you're fleeing in a full blown rock avalanche and the arrows are still flying. Then you look around you and you realize there is no way out. You are completely trapped. You've got a gorge and a active rock fall. And then the the noose is tightening because the soldiers that have you surrounded are getting closer as you are suffering more. And as the chaos increases and as the officers are trying to get some semblance of... Like forming up, get your shields up, this and that, but people are just too panicked, they're probably not listening. Now, instead of just arrows, you've got spears and javelins, because it's closer. By the time people are in hand-to-hand fighting, there's probably barely any resistance. I doubt the will, Uh, Lord Will, lost many of his warriors that day. Probably very few, maybe none. It's quite possibly they had zero casualties, something like that. It was was just such an effective ambush. It's it's actually, I would rarely consider such a Overwhelming success, but th- this is possible. So, uh, and it's and part partly because it's a small army, only a thousand men, and yeah, it, that made it easier to encircle them. And On one hand, they didn't need as many supplies, and, and something maybe that, that they were being smart. But if they had brought a lot of men, that would have been used against them. If they brought a fewer men, that was used against them. It just, just goes to show how kind of impossible the whole thing was, given their, <laughs> given, their given their strategy. Maybe if they had done it differently, but yeah. Uh, so they, the stormmen suffered huge losses during that portion of the conquest maybe this was another factor as to why his portion of the army was so small whatever reasons there were though it clearly didn't work out the will of will is called widow lover in that quote and elsewhere and he is named quote a savage mountain lord as well there (laughs) the mountain lord part speaks for itself he is literally a lord of a castle in the mountains his family has known the area for countless generations He's got to know all these routes, hidden passes, tunnels, just everything. I mean, they've been there so long. They know all the stuff, all the routes. They even maybe made their own tunnels in a few spots here and there. And that's going to matter because Aegon will be very unhappy (laughs) with the will of will and for this and other reasons. But it's hard to punish a savage mountain lord who has tunnels he can hide in. And yes, the will of will will. He's not going to truly get a comeuppance. Maybe his his descendants, however, that's another matter. So we'll be certainly coming back to this character. This reminds me, we, we made a lot of comparisons to real world and other fantasy. It's time for one of those here. We got the Fremen and Dune. This is kind of how I picture the, the will of will there. These guys are a little more bloodthirsty, I think. The Fremen are a little more composed and a little more disciplined and other things. But st- the the sudden attacks, the making the land their own, like being one, being part of it, knowing it extremely well, adapting, making it really harsh for invaders, concealing their numbers really well. That's a thing in Dune, the the Harkonnens dramatically underestimate how many Fremen there are.
1: <laughs> I was going to say being underestimated in the first place. I think that's another thing that Aegon did well earlier that he and his forces are doing poorly now is... Gathering intelligence, just scouting out and prepping for what's to come. They just went in too quick, too unprepared.
0: You can't scout caves. You can maybe, you, you may not even know the cave is there, let alone what's in it. <laughs> you know, it's hard. I, it's, a lot of their natural advantages were neutralized. Like the dragons can't, the, the, at best a dragon might see them going into the cave. and But how big the cave is, how deep it goes. Yeah, you're not scouting that. <laughs> well, we saw the entrance. That's about all we know. <laughs> So And then Nina makes another comparison here about the struggle of the horses in the narrow mountain passes. Think of Stannis's knights struggling in the snow on the march to Winterfell. Just a completely opposite type of weather condition, but a very similar result in terms of how the horses struggle and what ends up happening to them. Some of them end up dying. Now, Ori's had a battle like this. Remember, he had the first conflict when he marched his army towards Storm's End before the final climactic engagement with King Argilac was an ambush at the Wendwater and they lost there. Remember they got uh they weren't ready for it. They were kinda of caught off guard. Looks like maybe Oris isn't great at uh detecting ambushes. Is, <laughs> you know, you got ambushed there, you got ambushed here. But hey, when you're a high lord, you have a reasonable expectation that they're not going to kill you and he was right they kept took him captive maybe it was a little bit of that inborn arrogance there's like well the worst won't happen to me (laughs) it might happen to everybody else maybe but honestly of course i don't think he expected any of this to happen i think he just expected to win
1: it it took a little luck too to not be killed like even if you are this wealthy highborn person that's more valuable to be ransomed or whatever. He still just might accidentally get shot or an arrow or yep. just some no overzealous warrior just keeps swinging his sword and isn't thinking about ransoms. He just wants to kill the bad guy. There's all kinds of things that have to work out just right to to be you're captured right. instead of killed in battle.
0: You're totally right. There's been plenty of cases where someone in Ori's position was killed in battle, and you're right. And, and then they, they might have regretted it because, like, damn, that would have been a big ransom. But you're right. He- <laughs> heat of battles, also a hell of a drug. <laughs> so another thing, of course, Ori's had... With him in the Stormlands was Maraxes, who he does not have Rhaenys <laughs> and Maraxes nowhere near at this point. They're all the way over near the Planky Town, nowhere near the Boneway. So there's the Tyrell host, the Baratheon host, which is no more, and King Aegon's host. Let's see how he was doing while one was struggling and the other was gone.
1: Quote King Aegon himself had more success. Sorry, I gotta break the quote. Not hard to do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. The oh, more was success was low. Than Emma. <laughs> the bar was low. <laughs> Sorry, okay. King Aegon himself had more success. Marching eastward through the foothills, where runoff from the heights provided water and game was plentiful in the valleys, he took the castle Skyreach by storm. One Yarnwood, after a brief siege, the lord of the Tor had recently died and his stewards surrendered without a fight.
0: So that's three castles. Fowler, Ironwood, and Jordain, all kind of... Heading east towards Sunspear. You kind of crossed through all those. Meanwhile, though, the Tyrell host has been severely weakened and hasn't accomplished anything, and Orys' army is gone. He would have expected to meet Oris's army because Aegon goes through the western pass and goes east. So he would have expected Oris to... Would have come along there and linked up at some point. But of course... That never happened. He would have been left wondering what happened to Ori's. Where's Ori's? I don't know. And there would be maybe no word ever. They just, I'm kind of thinking maybe the wills would have maybe sent some sent a head or two. But they might have just preferred to do nothing and let them stew and wonder. Be like, where's our Stormlander army? And as days pass, <laughs> as Ori's, as there's nowhere, true deadly silence, true deathly silence there. He'd be like the wonder would be greater and maybe some people in the army would be like yeah didn't we have stormlander allies weren't we gonna wasn't that didn't i hear something about that and then they just would never appear and you'd be like well you know it's an art it's it's a campaign things change plans change but it would be kind of ominous it'd be like what happened to the stormlanders where are they and and is
1: that gonna happen to us <laughs> it would be much smarter i think to not let them know at all because they're more likely to make mistakes without the information mm. right Okay. They're not sure how much water they should be preserving for this army that might come needing it. They're not sure how long they should wait before moving out. Things like this. The, 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 the longer they wait, the, the, the more likely they are to make bad decisions based on not knowing what they need to do next and the worse morale gets.
0: Yes, that's a very good point. And, and there would, might be attempts to keep the armies from contacting each other. That might be a p- specific plan of the Darnish, is to use some of their guerrilla attacks on messengers. Like, Ravens aren't very useful in a situation like this because you can't send ravens to an army in the field. Now, when the army gets to Hellholt, it could maybe send a raven all the way back to King's Landing or something like that. And But that's still very slow, even slower than normal communication. And if they're going to send horse couriers back and forth, well, for one thing, that's particularly difficult when you're in the desert. Like, you've gone all the way through the deep desert. I don't know if you can send a lot of messages back and forth, especially because you don't necessarily know where to send them. You don't know where Aegon's army necessarily is. You know, it's... Somewhere north of you heading east. Um, and if I'm the Dornish, I'm doing everything I can to stop those messages going back and forth. So like you say, Sean, the best play might be to just let them stew on it. And it's tempting to rub it in their faces because they want to. It's part of their psychological warfare is to to lower morale. But this, this, this restraint might actually have a greater effect. I, li- I like that thought. As dark as it is. <laughs> So Aegon probably doesn't know. He doesn't know about how bad it's going in for the Tyrell army. He doesn't know about the the wipeout of the Stormlander army. So this applies to the lower level guys, too. This, this like, what happened to the Stormlander army is going to apply to the knights and lords, but to lower level troops also. Everything we talked about in the Prince's Pass with the, the sheep and the food and the anxiety, now it's, it's getting worse. It's still getting worse, despite a few victories because they're they're starting to think like you tell yourself you're winning, right? You're you're taking all these castles. You've taken three of the biggest, most famous Dornish castles with basically without a fight. At the first one, you're like, yeah. The second one, you're like, all right. But by the third, you're like, something's not right (laughs) about this. (laughs) You know, they're not just cowardly, are they? This is... This is some plan and I don't know what it is. And I'm starting to get scared of what it might mean, given all these other ominous signs here and there. <laughs> and it's like, they're not actually afraid, are they? Cause like, you don't do the sheep wall if you're afraid. You don't do night attacks if you're afraid. Like the, the whole narrative they're afraid of us is gonna be harder and harder to sell to the troops.
1: Or even if, if you do still think they're afraid, that, that's a coward's tactic to, to, to ambush us at night and to block the path with sheep, all this other stuff. But at some point when you're dying of thirst and your horse is dead and one-third of your army is dead and like okay now we're afraid i hope we don't have to meet them in the field right yeah that was the whole idea in the beginning they're scared to meet us in the field well at this point they're probably scared to meet them in the field (laughs) yeah you get to
0: that point where like actually i just want to go home thank you
1: (laughs) also does it kind
0: of seem like aegon gave himself the easiest job like he didn't go through the bone way. That's the hard one. And then he didn't have to go through the deep desert. He gets to go through the like the more lush part of Dorne. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, he, well, that's what you get to do when you're the king. Not that Balarian would have been much help in the desert anyway, and or. Probably not all that helpful in the mountains. It's too large, you know, that a smaller dragon might've actually been better, you know?
1: Hindsight is twenty twenty. like the way it turned out. It, it, sure, it sure seems like that. But I wonder if he had split the forces differently. If he had stayed with the troops going through the past, maybe the dragon could have blown a flyer in the outskirts or, or seen, you know, the, the just the dragon in the air could have collected more intelligence or something that might've made that battle go differently. And whatever forces did what he did, might have been more vulnerable. I'm not sure how true that is, but you got to at least take that into account that it's yeah. possible that we're uh, being results-oriented here.
0: I agree, yeah. And it's entirely possible as well that it's just a strategy thing. Like if he had used Balerion differently, it might have, you know, different things might have happened, but he used him, he kind of waited for an army, I guess. <laughs> and then none, one never came, so there was... He just wasn't deployed like you don't really hear about Valerian doing anything during any of this because they the dornish correctly give balerion nothing to do they're like well if you want to burn a castle or two you can do that we can't stop you from that but you're not going to win the war by melting castles <laughs> you know Yes, yeah, so that- this is a
2: time when Valerian might have been most useful as a messenger yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it's like it may be kind of unthinkable to use Valerian as a messenger but that might have been the smarter play. <laughs> it's like, oh, my dragon is no messenger. Well, maybe you should reconsider your, your hoity toity thoughts on this, Aegon. Remember, too, if we go back to Daron, the first, the, the young dragon, they were like, can you take Doran without dragons? As I'm showing here, there's, the dragons weren't actually that big a deal. I mean, they did a lot of devastation, they were a big deal, but they didn't really move the needle towards winning the war. It was other factors. And of course, it was they didn't ever really win the war. They temporarily declared victory. Both of these stories, both Daron and Aegon said, hey, I guess I win. And then they were proven wrong (laughs) by what came next. But he did Daron did do some things smarter. Like he showed that navies might maybe are even better than dragons, which goes to show that Aegon should have done both. Uh, Nina raises an idea here that isn't in the book, but could have been. It it may be something that was discussed, but didn't make the history books. The kind of thing that you would expect would have been talked about. Would have been maybe Aegon considering granting primacy over Dorne to someone else. Like making a deal with the Ironwoods. Right? The Ironwoods have have always thought, even now, as far as we know, that they're superior to the Martells. That They deserve to be the top spot in Dorne. So with that in mind... And that's a well-known thing. I mean, after all, the Ironwoods did split with the Martels during the Blackfyres rebellions, right? They were like, well, maybe this is our chance to, to, to jump over the Martells. Was that a consideration here? Against that argument is the fact that Aegon doesn't work like that, right? He's, that's more of a winning through politics. He wants to win through strength. He wants to dominate you in a way that shows he's stronger. Not in a way that shows he's cleverer or smarter, although he I'm sure those things matter to him. But number one is I'm stronger and cutting deals to win a war isn't I mean, is it's a form of strength? It's political power, but it's not the I beat you in the field idea that Aegon wants to really establish that he really wants to drive home. So maybe he thought about that idea. Of making the Ironwood say, hey, Ironwood, take our side, be our man on the inside, and we'll make you top dogs. It may not have, they may have abandoned the idea because they didn't think it would work as well. Maybe the Ironwoods, they just, the Ironwoods of that era were not open to that sort of thing. They're like, no, we're Dornish, we're not turning on our own people. Whereas... That You know, 180 years later, when Dorn was already part of the realm, it's a different consideration for the Ironwoods of that era to join with the Blackfyres, because you're really just picking one side of the Targaryen family. You're not throwing them off entirely, right? That's the difference here, is this is against other Dornishmen, whereas it's more Dorne split in half during the Blackfire rebellions. They're more fighting over the throne rather than each other. So uh, the Jourdain steward, in fact, when he surrendered, this is the third one that may have even reminded them of the Tyrell surrender of high guards like, well, maybe that's what I have to do. If, if the top house isn't going to capitulate, I make someone else the top house. That's kind of what happened in the Riverlands, too. He's like, well, the hair the black didn't capitulate. House whore is gone now or almost gone. So Tully's you're up next. You get to be top dog now. So it's not like he hadn't done sort of similar things elsewhere, but I'm not sure it's what he wanted. I think he preferred to just take on the top dog and have them bend the knee to him. Let's talk about how he declared victory. He continued east towards Sunspear, continuing to meet basically no resistance or odd resistance. (laughs) He took major sights in his path. And here's what came next.
2: Farther east, Lord Talland of Ghost Hill sent forth his champion to challenge the king to single combat. Aegon accepted and slew the man, only to discover afterward that he had not been Tallinn's champion, but his fool, Lord Tallinn himself, was gone.
0: This just weird, right? (laughs) I I don't get it, right? It's strange. Uh, I don't understand what they hope to accomplish by this, right? But but start from the beginning, picture it. A lot of lords might've been sweating this duel. They're like, oh my, our king, who has no heir, don't forget, is gonna duel someone. They might be a little anxious about that. Some of them would be confident because Aegon is just so strong and he is a great warrior. They probably wouldn't, they might not have been too worried. Like they've never heard of this Toland champion. Who is this guy? He's nobody, more true than they thought. <laughs> He's really, truly nobody. If If it were written, like with prose, it might start like Gregor versus Oberin or strong Belwas versus the hero of Marine, only for it to turn into a complete dud. You're like, wait, that wasn't, who was that? That, that guy didn't look like he even knows how to fight. <laughs> how long did it take for them to figure out that he was the fool? Like they didn't just realize that right away. Like Aegon wins and they're like, well, that was easy. What's going on here? And what was it that took his armor off and underneath there's Motley? Like what? <laughs> What was the moment in which they realized he was the fool? They might wonder also, you know, it's the king, the Targaryen king is fighting a duel against, hee hee, it's a, it's a fool. <laughs> so maybe they didn't watch because they knew what was gonna happen. Or, but maybe if they don't watch, doesn't that kind of give away that something is up? <laughs> right? like why aren't any Dornishmen watching this duel? And how does this come to play? Like, did they just leave this fool behind? Like, okay, fool. <laughs> we got to get out of here but we need someone to stay behind to <laughs> c- create a distraction but that doesn't make a lot of sense they knew Aegon was coming weeks ahead of time probably so i just yeah i don't really, i don't really understand it was it meant to uh, to annoy Aegon, to embarrass him to shame him sometimes? Like, look at this he's killing fools look at how weak he is he's gotta kill fools to make himself look strong because he can't fight real warriors like, yeah, I really don't understand. And and this is when they change their banner to a dragon chasing its tail. It had been a ghost because their ghost hill is their is their location. So, I, yeah, I still. So when they so when they gather to commemorate this trick of their brave fool, what what exactly are they celebrating? Like that fool, he sure did
2: die. Pointlessly? Like I don't <laughs> I don't know what this accomplished. <laughs> I made a fool of him. I mean it makes me think honestly of the humiliation tactic that they used in this season of Fargo, without any spoilers, but the idea that when you have a powerful man humiliating him and making him look a fool to other people can really uh, it, it hurts yeah, more than yeah, you, might hurts you might think because he's so proud. Yeah, he's so proud. Mm, he's proud. Okay. Like his power is is a big part. It's his power is a big part of his power. But yeah, like his <laughs> status is a part of his power. And yeah, I think it word, to yeah, would. Yeah, word spread him. that
0: Aegon duelled a fool.
2: Yeah, duelled a fool. But yeah, I think it would. I think Dornishmen probably sing songs about this. There probably is a Dornish song about this exact thing. It gives heart to their people. Yeah, I, I think that even if it, it doesn't stop things in its tracks, but it helps.
0: Mm. And yeah, so that's, uh, Nina writes, maybe it's, maybe I'm assuming too much about their ability to get away. Maybe they didn't have as much warning or maybe, yeah, maybe he moved quickly and maybe they didn't know for sure he'd come for them because he was heading for Sunspear and maybe they, they gambled that he wouldn't bother with them. So, mm, who knows? Now, interestingly enough too, there's, House Tallon has a Dragon Dreamer in their, uh, in their family right now. And it's kind of a mystery how that happened. Well,
2: I- there's theory. possibilities, yeah.
0: but it is interesting. It's not like a it's not like a completely impenetrable mystery, but it's
2: oh. it's
0: interesting to tie these these anecdotes together and and wonder if they're no.
2: Considering the Targaryens, uh, we have had they've married into Dorne. Yeah, I, it makes sense that someone from that a Martell tolland match. Ma- yeah, I'm yeah, exactly. Rather, the, yeah, the Martells and then Daenerys had a lot Talens. of children, so yeah. So that that's my my choice, my theory there. I just think it makes great sense that the Martells the Tollands would marry and the the. Targaryen shared their blood with the Dornish and so now they'll pop up around Dorn potentially there's other houses that that could happen to it you know yeah
0: and it it really does open that possibility up that that could happen somewhere else, like other Dornish house maybe or something here and there yeah it's pretty cool it's also
2: true I mean I guess any other any houses where like Targaryen has married into I think in that region the people like marriages they could make you could uh, you could speculate that like that is the case there as well
0: yeah, and th- there's a couple other possibilities. Yeah, maybe uh, yeah. Aegon, Nina writes that fighting when Aegon finds out the champion was a fool, he would look like a fool himself. You know, like he was duped into this. Whether or not, like. There's multiple things that are embarrassing about it, I guess. Yeah, maybe I maybe I underestimated the embarrassment suffered by him. I like your example of Fargo. That's a good one.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it we, we did embarrass him. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. He was very embarrassed by that. It was like, it's like a, a, a regular person, it's just like, an, it's like a prank. You know, you're like, oh, that's funny. But like to someone who's really wrapped up in their own ego and their mm, own reputation respected. is so important and respected. And to have that, to, to damage that damages his, his kingship even. So. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. But it is possible that this fool was. It says this guy's mad. He might have genuinely wanted to fight Egon. Like, there's still the idea of, like, how did they get this guy to do it? <laughs> like, even if, like, did, yeah. did the fool really. Like, you can order a man to do it, but, like, how is he going to, like, have the courage to actually do it? You know, he might just be like, I'm too afraid of this, man. I know you're ordering me to do it, but I'm just going to run away. <laughs> you know, I don't want to fight this guy. He really did face him and die. Oh,
1: so a fool. Yeah. He is
0: a fool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there is, you know, there are a few real world examples of things like this. There was a a knight in William the Conqueror's army, I believe it was, who there's a story where this guy just like launched himself at the opposing army by himself in between like forays, like the two armies were separated. And this guy just like launched himself forward and was like naked or something. I, I forget all the details, but he was just. Someone just went mad. He charged by himself and of course he died. You know, <laughs> it was just really weird. But again, so many things that are weird that happen in Westeros history. There's something just as weird in a nearly identical way that happened in the real world and w- which might in fact be the inspiration for that. And we already have a legend of Florian the Fool. There's already a popular Westerosi Legend, one of the most popular stories, one of the most memorable like fables of Westeros or legends, whatever you want to call it. I don't think they use the word fable, but still it's a it's a appropriate term. So Dorne is no, they know Florian the Fool down in Dorne. I mean, Tansel, Tancel the Tall, she puts on Florian the Fool as one of her puppet shows in The Hedge Knight. And yeah, any fool can be a great knight, according to this legend. So maybe this crazy fool was even thinking of himself as a true Florian. Maybe they maybe they refer to him as their Florian because we don't know what this guy's name was. Florian Tolland, (laughs) the mad fool. He wouldn't have been a Tolland probably, but Florian of the Tollands. (laughs) Yeah, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's kind of neat little story. It's both weird and interesting and and quirky and and just, yeah, it's kind of interesting that he even accepted the duel in the first place, though. Not too surprising given he wants to show himself as a dominator and he had already done it. He had already dueled a few other people. Like I think the most recent one had been at, uh, at Volmark, um, in the iron islands, or maybe not Volmark, maybe black try to forget, but he fought one of those guys in in a duel in the iron islands during that episode.
1: I still think it is by the way, a little odd, like it may, maybe even necessary, but it's a bit of a risk. You know, he's got to really think he's better than the best, dorm maybe never mind maybe it wasn't the same reputation at that time but maybe the fear of poisoning too you know like maybe he just had enough confidence in his armor and his blade and his training and maybe there would have been instructions for Someone with a bow and arrow to like, <laughs> a, yeah, I was thought, stop maybe a final like a, blow from being dealt. But you know. yeah,
0: maybe there was like a yeah, I would have expected maybe it was an assassination attempt, and you know they just uh, th- it's surprising how l- few or no assassination attempts there are at this point, given that there will be lots later. So I wonder if they just like flipped a switch, like okay, we're not like this, but now we are. But I don't, I don't really think so. I mean, they were totally willing to do night attacks and all these other like guerrilla warfare stuff. I don't know why they'd scruple to
1: not try to murder the king or one of the queens well maybe because they're afraid if they did that he would ruthlessly burn cities down yeah But once they're ruthlessly burning cities down anyway okay fine we're gonna try to poison you
0: i agree because i think their idea was to get them to leave and if you kill the king they're not gonna leave they're gonna they're gonna like you say get really vicious and bloody and murderous on the other hand killing the king might end the war so there is like that's it's a calculated but
1: it might drink it might Attract two more dragon riders.
0: Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Well, one was already there. So what, the the other dragon rider. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Either way. So and, and, and from Aegon's perspective, like they continue, they keep not facing him. Finally, someone's willing to fight him. You know, it's just a duel. It's not an army, but it's something that he can go. All right, I can. I'll win this. It's something I can plant my flag in and be like, look, here's a victory. It's me personally winning it. I didn't send someone else to do it, only for it to be embarrassing <laughs> because it was a fool. So he's like, finally, all right, someone's going to fight me, but oops, it, nope, they, not that happened. Maybe he convinced, maybe he was still convincing himself they were afraid at this point. And then at this point, he's like, okay, this isn't fear. They're messing with me. They're trying to, they're just doing asymmetrical warfare, which may be something he wasn't that familiar with. He certainly didn't use that term, asymmetrical warfare. But (laughs) he started maybe, I wonder at which point he realized that this just wasn't working. Or whether they're not playing by, quote unquote, the rules of warfare he was used to, whether that would ultimately result in some other outcome. Because as we're going to see, he's just going to, declare victory without really ever beating the people he came to beat so it was said lord talon had gone away right and all these other lords before that quote continues here
2: as was miriam martell the princess of dorne when king aegon descended upon sunspear on balerion to find his sister rainies there before him after burning the planky town she had taken lemonwood spotswood and stinkwater accepting obeisance from old women and children but nowhere finding an actual enemy even the shadow city outside the walls of sunspear was half deserted and none of those who remained would admit to any knowledge of the whereabouts of the dornish lords and princess the yellow toad has melted into the sands queen raenys told king aegon aegon's answer was a declaration of victory
0: yeah, so it's another example of overconfidence, quite possibly. Like they're thinking, well, we win. They didn't face us, so we win. It's that simple. We've got their capital. It's like capture the flag. Like they left it sitting here. We took it. We win, right? Given the rules of warfare they're used to that's ingrained in their minds, this is a victory. But it's not. It, 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 maybe it's just a political statement like, well, they're not, they refuse to admit they've lost. So we're just going to loudly declare victory because it's the best we can do. What are we gonna do say well i guess we didn't win after all what's he gonna declare non-victory i mean he's got to do something but as we've said sean in many different ways running away isn't giving up (laughs) they're still fighting it's just they're just not fighting frontal warfare nina brings up another real world example here king william iii and the glorious revolution facing the invasion of his daughter and son-in-law king james ii of england fled to france which he threw the great seal which is like the 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 royal insignia he threw it into the thames (laughs) he just threw it in the river william and his government thereafter decided to say that by fleeing abroad and abandoning the great seal he had abdicated like you by doing that you have declared you're no longer the king they just took that as a sign of capitulation so they just like made up a rule they're like if you do that that means you're not king anymore And a lot of people would buy that because, again, they're the ones who have the voice. They're the ones making the narrative and no one else can argue with them. They have the armies and the the voices and the the pens and paper making these declarations. Whether the other armies and other kings and lords and ladies agree with that is another matter. And the declaration isn't going to affect that over much, although it may affect some people in the middle and what side they take. So yeah, just better to it's better than admitting that that they had their strategy was a failure. Better admitting that the Dornish had outmaneuvered them. Say hey, we're in your castle, so we win. It's a better optics, I guess, even though it's not necessarily the truth.
1: At the time, it would have felt like the truth. It's easier again for us to look at it with 2020 hindsight. But why would they not think they won when they're in the castle (laughs) of their opponent? yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess it's because there's still so many Dornish out there who had not capitulated, but I guess the rest of Westeros doesn't know that. Like, from yeah, in the Stormlands, yeah. in the Reach, and taverns all around Westeros, they, all they're hearing is that the king is in sunspear now like well he must have they might even assume some battle was won that he to do that they might not have even they might not have heard the part about no one was there <laughs> they just walked <laughs> in that part might not have been part of the rumor it might just have been a, the some victory or other might have been assumed so in addition to this very sketchy declaration of victory aegon's plan to rule dorn afterwards also has some very Glaring red flags that I think a lot of you will identify right away. Here in this quote,
1: in the great hall at Sunspear, he gathered together what dignitaries remained and told them that Dorne was now part of the realm. That henceforth they would be his leal subjects. That their former lords were rebels and outlaws. Rewards were offered for their heads, particularly that of the Yellow Toad Princess Maria Martell. Lord John Rosby was named castellan of Sunspear and warden of the sands to rule dorn in the king's name. Stewards and Castellans were named for all of the lands and castles the Conqueror had taken. Then King Aegon and his host departed back the way they had come, west along the foothills and through the Prince's Pass. They had hardly reached King's Landing before Dorne erupted behind them.
0: Yeah, so this is what we were saying before, is that they were trying to lull Aegon into, in this, into declaring a premature victory and then leaving, and then that would enable them to slaughter everyone he left behind which is exactly what happened. Maybe Aegon thought he was clever, putting in Lord Rosby in charge, because that's not a Stormlander, not a Reachman. It's like, well, they won't hate him as much. Yeah, they don't have grudges against Lord North of the Blackwater, right? Actually, yeah, they, they do because he's an invader. Like it they might hate a Stormlander more, but it's like that million degrees a day thing. It's still well over the bar for hating him. <laughs> Hating more doesn't make that much difference. You know, he's still an invader. You know, this man is not going to rule over them if they have any say of it. And, well, here's what happens next. Quote.
2: Dornish spearmen appeared from nowhere like desert flowers after a rain. Skyreach, Ironwood, the Tor, and Ghost Hill were all recaptured within a fortnight their royal garrisons put to the sword. Aegon's Castellans and stewards were allowed to die only after long torment. It was said that the Dornish lords had a wager over who could keep their captive alive the longest whilst dismembering them. Lord Rosby, Castellan of Sunspear and Warden of the Sands, had a kinder end than most. After the Dornish men swarmed in from the Shadow City to retake the castle, he was bound, hand and foot, dragged to the top of the spear tower, and thrown from a window by none other than the aged Princess Myria herself.
0: This, to me, probably was a bit like King Viserys killing the stag in House of the Dragon, where it's just all set up for him, and all he has to do is just, like, stab it. They're basically holding it in place for him. (laughs) This is probably what it was. Like, is again, like in her 80s, so she probably just, like, barely pushes him, and they just, like, (laughs) set him, like, so he's able to topple right out, you know? But... It's pretty nasty, but these are unprovoked invasions. These are home destroyers. I mean, these are, this is vicious. This is vicious versus vicious. And, and they're led by, again, ancestral foe, traumatic legends, right? Dornish, Rhoynar. They're going to have sympathy for people who are opposing Valyrians, dragons, Targaryens on just on general principle. This is an ancient enemy. And they want to intimidate people. Intimidation, psychological warfare, all this stuff is in place this is part of their plan because they can't win through tr- the traditional conservative frontal assault means they have to use what they have and this is what they have like what happened to Oris baratheon's army there was a psychological plan in mind here it wasn't just pure savagery it was savage strategy
1: strategy st- savagery. I don't know. There's a word in there somewhere that can be made. <laughs> it's sort of terrorism, you know, like in, in modern terms or modern uh, rules of warfare or whatever. A lot of what the, both sides are doing, honestly. I was going to say, what would they have done with that Rosby guy? If they had had a grudge against what if he was a reachman (laughs) yeah that's
0: that's the difference it makes like had a kinder end than most he only fell to his death yeah he would have been if he had been a stormlander or a reachman yeah i think they might have tortured him more yeah (laughs) Uh,
1: by the way don't don't blow off that line bound hand and foot and dragged up the can you imagine that's like literally being beaten with the bat a thousand times maybe like every step of your body being smacked as you get found no way to protect your face or anything you know that would be awful yeah that's
0: that's real bad so it was called the defenestration of sunspear and the calendar had shifted to ac5 by the time it happened so we can roughly about a year i guess this portion of the war was maybe a little less certainly not two though you got to give them some style points and symbol points for that last one as gnarly as all this is maria uh, maria doing it herself giving given all her infirmities and how old she is like it, it really shows that the dornish will resist to the last and and using different means than what would be accepted northwards, right? Like even the old women are in the fight is kind of what it symbolizes. Even the old the oldest women who are in their society are per- perhaps the weakest, which is not true, but they might see it that way. Uh, even they will stand up to these knights, to these lords of the the other kingdoms, and that's how that's the face that Dorne puts on this that they will resist. Even the quote-unquote weakest of them will resist and fight. And this is what happens. So, yeah. So, the farther south and west, the Tyrell army under Lord Harlan mobilized. Here's how we recall how difficult things are in the hellhole. We did an episode, like you said, Sean, hardcore houses pretty recently. We spoke of it in a few places uh, besides that as well. The Highgarden episode, it came up a bit. Uh, so, and remember, they that, that army already wasn't at full strength. So... That was a, yeah, a bad time, right? (laughs) So they were already weakened by who knows how much. And the Corgyles interestingly, another hardcore house, had never submitted at all. No one ever came to them and said, hey, you give up now, right? They were like, no, we're in the deep desert. No one even bothered to come to us because we're so far off the beaten path. So they were still, like, attacking Hellholt here and there, sending raiding parties in, attacking their food supplies. But eventually they heard that the... hellhole Tyrell's heard about the defenestration got that beaten up understaffed sick army and headed East to, to go to Vaith and vanished. I think you all remember this one that that's uh, been cited a few times. So all of that army's gone, all of that Baratheon force gone. A, a, a part of Aegon's army destroyed as well, because he had some losses here and there. He didn't go through the deep deserts and, you know, but still they he left men behind his garrisons, all of which were destroyed to a man. So I'm gonna guess that out of about thirty-one thousand fighting men that went into Dorne, only about twelve thousand survived. So about nineteen thousand or so died. Not to mention the officials, tax collectors, all the other folks who came afterwards, and non combatants who also died during because you know they weren't the only ones you know it wasn't just the soldiers dying of starvation and, or rather, of thirst and heat. Some of the camp followers as well, and just people sharpening the weapons and providing the food, they would have been suffering just as badly and maybe even worse, because this a lot of times the soldiers are considered more important. So, yeah. All right. It's a decent spot to leave it. The ending of the army and the sort of finishing of the first portion of this war. Next time up, we'll start by discussing some of the strategy and why some of these things went wrong, both in terms of navies and dragons, and then get into the non-traditional aspect of this war, the part that lasted the longest, the assassinations, the, uh, the subterfuge, the cloak and dagger, the really dirty and savage and bloody and brutal portions of this war that are really kind of unlike anything else in the history of Westeros. It's very unique, maybe only A Song of Ice and Fire itself uh fits as a parallel to some of the stuff that we're going to get into next time.
1: you know when you talk about a thousand men trapped on a bridge getting butchered like pigs, and then you say next time we're going to get into the really brutal part jeez <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Ugh>, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's not really as it isn't worse in that sense, it's just a different form of brutal It's a different brand of brutal, yeah it's more of more of the murdering and torturing
1: and I would say it may even be more brutal because people because those soldiers all we're soldiers going to war. And, you know, I guess maybe they didn't all exactly volunteer for it, but a lot more innocent people get destroyed. You know, we I mean, guess it was also pretty brutal to burn Town, and, you know, all these other things. So I, I do think that there is some similarly brutal stuff coming up.
0: Yeah, I think so too. So if you like brutality, we've got the stuff <laughs> for you. Come back next time. Well, there won't be a new recording next week. We will be at MAGFest in Washington, D.C., so if you're going to be there, come say hey. That is hey. the
2: Music and Gaming Festival, That's to right. be clear.
0: Yes, MAG, just M-A-G. There's no other letter at the end of that.
2: Yeah, Music and Gaming. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're in Maryland area, we will be there. I uh, hope to see you there.
0: Yeah, we're driving on up. That's right. So, back in two weeks for the second half of the First Dornish War. And the, today's trivia question. Remember, House Tolland is now a dragon chasing its tail but it was a ghost for ghost hill that's right uh, which is one of the only reasons we know ghosts are a thing in all of westeros because the only other t- ghost i can think of is john pretending to be a ghost by covering himself in flour. So that clearly that's a thing that he the, was trying yeah, to be. And,
2: and the word ghost of high heart. Yeah, term. the word comes like up they, in other people. You're right. It, but you I know? mean like the personification yes. of a ghost. Like yeah. what do they look
0: like? Like we think of the sheet, you know, the white sheet. I think
1: sheet they look things. like a big white direwolf. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
0: With red eyes, it never makes a sound. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. So I so I don't know. So I, when I picture a sigil of Ghost Hill, I'm like, what does that ghost? What did yeah. it look like? Was it like a Casper, or was it? What does a Westerosi ghost <laughs> like it was image look like? It was Slimer. It was green. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a green dragon on their new one, so it, it would be consistent to have a green ghost. So yeah, huh. Other episodes that you might want to check out to keep immersed on this topic. Include Nymeria, both one episodes one and two. One day we'll do the third one, which is her conquest of Dorne itself. The first two are the different phases of the Roynish Odyssey. Daron the First, the Young Dragon, we've got an episode on him. We talked about him a few times this, this episode. We mentioned the High Garden episode. We mentioned Hardcore Houses a couple times. But there's so many other Targaryen related episodes and Dorne related episodes you could find in our catalog. Anything from ancient Dorne all the way to uh, episodes about Valyria. And uh, Targaryen-related houses like House Valerian and House Celtigar, And of course, don't forget the Last Storm episode, available for patrons and members only. And the Red Kraken episode, which takes place during the Dance of the Dragons. And is such a story that functions on its own that we decided to tell that tale separately. It's a, it's a bonus episode, and we did it with Radio Westeros alongside the rest of our Dance of the Dragons series, which is available to everyone yes right red kraken and last storm episodes good example of bonus scripted episodes you get by joining us on patreon and thanks to those of you who do support us there and on spotify you get those bonus episodes if you're a spotify subscriber as well thanks again to nina for the great notes lots of great takes on politics and parallels and history i have a cat
1: in my lap currently oh look at that
0: (laughs) yeah she's black so we can't tell very well (laughs) that's a camo cat right there even when Perfect. you do that it's hard to tell she's thank
2: there. you we, yeah people asked <laughs> so there you go
0: i'm glad to see our live viewers want more cat action because we do too we like it when you all remind us Aww. i think the cats like it too they know somehow they know that there's a live audience
1: i don't know if you can hear a purring
0: oh
1: close girl. to speaker
0: mm. <laughs> cool well everybody i hope you have a excellent week We appreciate you listening and being a part of our community. Thanks as well to uh, Michael Klarfeld and Joey Townsend and Jesse and Bran, everyone who helps us with the music and audio and maps and all the great stuff that helps make our show look more professional. We will see you next time. And you know what to do until then. I say it every time. I'm not going to stop. Valar, reread us.